0: evening i'm axis i'm owner and you're listening to the late night a horror podcast
1: happy april everyone easter passover Mm -hmm. ramadan beltane in bulk bridges day and Mm -hmm. (laughs) valpurgisnacht as with every april tonight we wearily gaze up to the stars and begin this month with paul ws anderson's event horizon from 1997 Starring Sam Neill, Laurence Fishburne, and Jason Isaacs, and we'll be following that with James Cameron's *Aliens* from 1986, starring Sigourney Weaver, Lance Henriksen, and Paul Reiser. We'll be right back after the tone. Stay tuned. So,
2: <laughs>
1: da, da, da. <laughs> Event Horizon,
0: spaceman. <laughs> yeah event horizon sam neill
1: double feature a rescue crew on a spaceship called the lewis and clark are yanked off their vacations and sent on a secret mission to locate another spaceship that disappeared eh, about 20 years ago called the event horizon uh using a piece of attractive paper called vanessa the ship's engineer dr weir played by jurassic park's sam neill explains that the Event Horizon travels by creating a gate that it can travel through to instantly arrive at another point. It does this by creating a black hole. Things don't go as planned, and the Event Horizon went in one way and didn't come out the other. (laughs) Turns out it went to hell, and now the Event Horizon and its enthralled uh, Dr. Weir do their best to take the crew back with them to hell. That's about the gist of it.
0: Yeah, yeah, keeping it simple.
1: (laughs) It, uh had a box office to budget of 60 million and it only made 42 million has an insane cult following in the field uh whenever friends who were horror fans rated my mp3 collection they always lift came in and orbitals tracks from the event horizon score from my library uh so much talent in both of these films so uh what do you think
0: Yeah. oh my god this this film this film such a doozy i mean like Again, like, pleased to see Sam Neill back after his April feature. Like, I love <laughs> his presence in these absolute wonky horror films. Um, I... I I think what really sets the tone for everything for me is just the intro of the movie with that quick montage of, like, here's what happened in 2015. Now we're in 2047. <laughs> I love sci-fi predictions of the future so much. I mean, they got it this far off back in 97, re the 2015 moon colony, which was very optimistic. It just harkens back to, you know, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Like, the optimism that the past had for where we would be now is so sweet and so naive.
1: Right. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna be married with a dog and three kids no you're not
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean we did just put a helicopter on mars and like that's pretty sick but we're still not working on faster than light travel yeah we're nowhere
1: near to fucking red planet and orcos of mars so upside downside you know kids (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, but the whole thing was fun. Like I like this kind of concept of a haunted house movie, but a haunted spaceship movie, yeah. and it it harkens back to some classics. I think I already mentioned this in the in the watch along, but I sat down and watched both of these with my dad because um, he was he's always thrilled when there are uh, movies that he wants to watch, which namely means sci fi or there's a samurai around. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> so when we get Zadwichi so... in space, he's going to be a guest uh, guest announcer.
0: <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> Um, yeah, but so I was watching with him and we're sitting there, we're watching, um, Dr. Weir just lie and just (laughs) threw his teeth over and over and over again like I don't see anything wrong there's nothing wrong here Um, and he was like yeah Dr. Weir is just like the guy who gets bitten first by the vampire and acts like everyone else is crazy he is a professional gaslighter this whole goddamn movie like take away his PhD and give him a degree in gaslighting (laughs) and
1: and that's actually one thing I'd like to point out early on is that both these Mm -hmm. films actually have a lot of commonalities Mm -hmm. this is going to probably be one of my Favorite episodes because we're gonna deep dive oh God, yes. into all of these commonalities. <laughs> I'm so um, excited. I, I want to start off by like blowing through the cast of, of Event Horizon. Mm-hmm. So everyone always thinks of Lawrence Fishburne as Morpheus from The Matrix, but uh, he's so even toned in all of his modern parts. Um, I personally loved him as Jimmy Jump in the King of New York from 1990s. Um, in the King of New York from 1990, no one is ever going to be the heart and soul of the Five Boroughs like Fishburne in that film so that's that's one thing if you guys ha- don't know jimmy jump in uh, the king of new york highly recommend watching the king of new york um it proves that beyond a shadow of a doubt the fishburn has probably more range than most other actors um we'll also know jason isaacs as the high-strung homicidal british gentleman from harry potter castlevania the animated series and the Patriot. i
0: love him it's so he, nice to see him not be a villain for once. Right
1: here, he also <laughs> is mean, homicidal. Yes. he's yeah, he a guy named still DJ. stone
0: cold, but
1: <laughs> he's less homicidal. But he's a more homicidal. But he's a medic. Okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> nothing yeah, quite yeah. like getting in the ambulance and be like, "I will fucking cut you." <laughs> yeah, he he
0: has, a, I would say, a value for life, and also an understanding of um, exactly when it doesn't matter, because he knows just how fragile it is, and he'll take it from you. <laughs>
1: We also had Stark, who was played by Jolie Richardson, who was uh, Teresa in Richard Stanley's Color Out of Space recently, In Darkness, mm-hmm. The Mad, uh, the Messenger, and the TV series Vampire Academy, where she was Queen Tatiana. She has a very storied career. Uh, she was also Anita in 101 Dalmatians for all you Disney fans.
0: Oh, I didn't know and, that. Yeah. <gasps> oh, I love it. Kathleen
1: that. Quinlan was from Apollo 13, a bunch of other stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we had uh, the... Mm-hmm even even powerhouse sean pertwee uh who plays wells in neil marshall's 2002 dog soldiers who totally took matrix's there is no spoon to a completely different fucking transcendental level so the the cast is just amazing um it's directed by paul ws anderson and um i always wonder how often paul anderson has to explain that he didn't direct the darjeeling limited or the Grand Best Hotel, and then I wonder if Wes Anderson has to explain that he didn't direct the Resident Evil franchise. I'm, I'm sure that doesn't please him either. Yeah. And whether, but, and I often after that, I then wonder if they would secretly collaborate and direct the Midnight Coterie of Sinister Intruders because oh I totally like to see that.
0: Give me the Anderson Anderson feature. I would love the Anderson
1: Anderson. Right?
0: Yeah. I mean
1: Anderson Anderson Studios presents.
0: Mm-hmm. Give me a <laughs> your Tweet horror balls. movie. I love that. I mean, of course, I want a Tweet horror movie. We saw how much I liked uh, how much I like house. Like it's it's obvious. <laughs> but, they would they would
1: be an amazing team.
0: Yeah, I would love that. And truly, you're right. Bolt move to include the W in his professional name cuz he usually gets billing as Paul W. Anderson, like mm. when, you know, when Wes Anderson exists. I wonder if there was a more famous Paul Anderson when he started that he thought he had to compete with and now yeah. he's put himself <laughs> to compete with two people. <laughs> yeah. So
1: I will say that whether it's Mortal Kombat or the Resident Evil franchise, Wes Anderson never felt like he was trying to win an Oscar. You know, he just no. seems to enjoy making fun movies and that's certainly no crime in cinema. Uh, whenever I think of him, I always think, I always think two things. Um, I think of a quote by actress, singer Bridget Everett where she says, you may not know me, but you ain't gonna fucking forget me. And the <laughs> second thing is he's married to Mila Jovovich. The end. You
0: know? Damn. <laughs> so, oh my God. Yeah. I missed that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> good for you mr anderson i mean yeah, yeah and what a, did you what a did you direct the
1: darjeeling limited no i'm married <laughs> to the really really hot model
0: <laughs> yeah power couple damn yeah and th- yeah. him getting into this movie was fascinating because i mean this was right on the heels of him directing Ooh. mortal combat which is you know appropriate timing to talk about considering the 2021 reboot coming up
1: mm-hmm. but
0: i love the i love the idea like just that he after that 95 the most popular thing on the block was mortal kombat and he's flooded with offers the things he turned down to to direct event horizon he turned down the mortal kombat sequel he turned down x-men he turned down the x-files movie and he turned down alien resurrection because he didn't want to get stuck doing what he called PG-13 movies and wanted something grittier. Yeah. So he dove yeah. into blood orgy.
1: <laughs> and I mean, yeah, like any like we all look back at Lucio Fucci, who is the godfather of gore. And mm-hmm. yeah, Anderson definitely seems to pay very competent homage to Fulci. Yeah. I mean, you can definitely yeah, see that and- there are parallels there.
0: And it was his direction very much. I mean, because when he got the original script handed to him from mm. Philip Eisner... Um... It was way different It was the ship yeah. was being haunted by Quote unquote tentacular Aliens from a parallel dimension Anderson acts yeah, all Metroid. of that Yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> Anderson acts all of that because he didn't Want to make, he specifically didn't want to make a movie That was too similar to Alien And rewrote it to be closer to the original Pitch that he got, that concept of A haunted house story in space And so he fleshed out using the haunting as sh- And the shining as inspiration For it and really went full gore fest in a way that was not really represented in the pretty standard sci-fi story scripts that he received right. this is a guy who knew what he wanted and did it
1: <laughs> yeah one thing that's worth noting about the film is the film's influence on other sci-fi works and projects, right? The Dead Space video game franchise was definitely influenced by the unique set design. I'll talk about the other elements later. It wasn't Ron Cobb's sleek and sterile alien set. It was industrial. You know, you got a urine yellow, jello green, gunmetal gray, piss Christ, you know, Serrano's <laughs> piss Christ looked like it'd be like right at home there. Um, it's a much grittier version of space than Cobb's alien interiors were. Um, now of course ron cobb we'll go back to this later but ron cobb did the interiors on aliens but aesthetically the big name tying aliens and event horizon together here is art director and set director Crispian salas Crispian Salis was nominated three times for an academy award for best art director and one of those times was for aliens he's comparable to the late bruno rubeo who was also a decorating genius um salas was the the son of two veteran actors salas's mother was elaine usher who did a lot of tv in the 50s and 60s and his father was actor peter salas who played a lot of notable horror works but whom i like to remember as the voice of wallace and wallace and gromit's chris of the
0: cute. <laughs> you're pulling out those heartfelt references today <laughs> i oh, love it
1: <laughs> i mean now when we did the your next i would like to say right here there's gonna be a lot of moments where Moner comes off his high horse. <laughs> when we did the Your Next Watch along back this past November, Axis and I were like, "Who the hell names their kid Crispian?" And now I'm like, <laughs> uh.
0: "Yeah, sorry for peeking the, the mic with that cackle, but <laughs> we I we're asshats."
1: <laughs> I, I, I once privately talked to two very prominent horror hostesses. I kind of I kind of pointed out that they mispronounced um, special effect artist rob B- Botine's name when they were covering the thing they were saying botten rob botten and i like was was such an asshole about it and now seeing how much time and research goes into doing a horror podcast oh i God. have since dismounted from my high horse yeah, I, am, I, I have to like, make a public apology about that i would also like um, to make a public
0: apology to everyone whose name i've ever said wrong like i the amount <laughs> of googling i do to try to find interview clips where somebody will actually for the love of god please say their name out loud just so i can hear somebody say it is immense and i still fuck up
1: (laughs) yeah and um i would like to know that there's also there's a shout factory documentary clip that we're going to put in the comments where salas is being interviewed and it's hilarious because they had a definitive idea for the lewis and clark spaceship you know submarine meets helicopter becomes a baby anglerfish kaiju (laughs) um but the event horizon um well joseph bennett the production designer uh couldn't exactly articulate what the he wanted for the event horizon to look like he communicated his desires by way of sound effect i believe his exact gesticulation to peter was (laughs) um and so god bless crispy and salas it's a fucking miracle that movies get made let alone that they make money Mm -hmm. so When talking about how we put together the Event Horizon, Salas said it was Notre Dame meets the Cologne Cathedral, uh, which we here in Cologne call the Dome. So I can't really, I've, I've been to both cathedrals, but I could talk a little bit more about the Dome. Um, Event Horizon is a Gothic space horror, so the dome makes a lot of sense to me when I look back at Event Horizon now. Uh, a little aside about the dome: it's a magnificent Gothic cathedral, uh, constantly under repair. It's mired in history and ghost stories. It's been flooded by the Rhine a few times. Uh, supposedly once hauled a gigantic bell called the Devil Bell, which foretold bad weather. Uh, it was one of the only structures in Cologne left standing following World War II. That's always an interesting picture. Like fucking Cologne is gone, but that fucking Church is still standing and the folk belief is that you know because we're always renovating it and because we're always replacing the stones we actually believe that when you run out of stones to repair the dome the world will begin to end so drawing from the dome made a fuck of a lot of sense um yeah so that's you know salas was was a big part of both of these films you know it's, it's you could definitely feel a lot of his grit in both aliens and um, event horizon and of course later on this got carried on to dead space and other places where we get a grittier texture
0: yeah um you, you so you've kind of touched a little bit on some of the uh the references the things that have referenced um have referenced event horizon my favorite is the kind of semi-intentional, semi-accidental crossover with Warhammer 4000.
2: Oh, Um, yeah.
0: So this is something that was a a rabbit hole for me to go down. So original screenwriter Philip Eisner did say that Warhammer 40,000 was an inspiration for the script. And let me tell you, I had no idea how huge the world of uh, Warhammer was. So for those of you who don't know, like I didn't... (laughs) Warhammer 40,000 is the most popular tabletop miniature war game in the world, especially popular in Britain, and the universe has branched out into several other spinoff tabletop games and the Dawn of War video game series. But yeah. it's uncanny. One of the themes in Warhammer is how the spaceships travel. To quote Wikipedia, quote, starships travel the galaxy by passing through the warp which is a parallel dimension where faster-than-light travel is possible, similar to hyperspace in the Star Wars setting, but is also infested with evil spirits, which are liable to infiltrate the ship and possess the crew if the ship isn't properly shielded. End quote. Sound a little familiar, perhaps?
1: Yeah, actually, also sounds like the wormhole from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Oh yeah, it's,
0: it's, it's all of the above. Um... (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's all of the above. Just just to throw that out there. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Please don't don't qualify. I am always thrilled to talk about Deep Space 9. That's the best Star Trek series. Fight me. Um, but <laughs> The the fans of Warhammer and of Event Horizon found the similarities so strong, obviously, that many of them consider Event Horizon as an unofficial prequel to the entirety of Warhammer 40,000, flashing back to when humans first discovered the warp and its dangers. And yeah. I I love this. I'm just so tickled pink by the idea that... The fans saw this movie that is officially entirely unaffiliated and they're like, that's it. That's our prequel. Everybody queue up, sit down, watch Event Horizon, get your popcorn because this is our right. Bible now. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good.
1: It, it, it's, you know, the crazy thing is just how much was left on the cutting room floor. Oh right? my
0: God. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 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 Um, a lot. Of- a lot of, a lot of notes, yeah. So the original cut of this movie was 130 minutes long, and the studio had it heavily edited to reach the 96-minute theatrical release. So.
1: So shame.
0: Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, some of it, yes. There's some stuff I don't know that I needed to see, as we'll get into.
1: <laughs> you wouldn't know until you saw it. I don't know. I don't know. I
0: have a vivid imagination, moaner. <laughs> Um. Yeah, so this the original long-as-hell cut came to be because rushed production delays meant that they only had four weeks for editing, whereas the team would have usually had ten weeks to edit the first cut of a film of this size and scope. Um. As a side note, a lot of the production was a rush because Paramount realized that Titanic wasn't going to meet its scheduled release date and they needed something to fill the gap, so this is another thing that we can blame James Cameron for.
1: So... <laughs> (laughs)
0: This so this first cut was not only. I know, I know. We love to. uh, We we have some shit to say.
1: Yeah, (laughs) we are gonna hammer on you, James. Yeah,
0: we'll we'll get there. We'll get there. We've got we've got time to go. (laughs) Um. So the this first cut was not only super long and still filled with weak takes, effects, and sound, but it also received complaints about the super extreme gore in the movie, which left Paramount shocked and audiences disturbed, with the director and producer claiming that members of their test audience fainted after watching the first cut. Um yeah. That's a
1: that's a positive song for. I, a part, I know. Really.
0: I mean, I, I will say that back when I um used to lead ghost tours. I did make a child faint once, which highly alarming at the time, not fun while I was calling 911, but um they were fine and I now kind of wear that as badge of honor.
1: <laughs> like, as that's, you should.
0: Yeah, that's kind of a, a victory when you're trying to scare people.
1: <laughs> this is that Agatha Harkness moment. I actually did bite a kid once. <laughs> Pause. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah. Yep. That that feels unbrand. Um, <laughs> so anyway, all of this led to Paramount demanding the shorter cut, which Anderson said was warranted. He he agreed totally willingly that the first cut was too long, but the second cut he said was too short. He believed the what? perfect cut would have had around ten more minutes of footage back into the yeah. film, including some of the lost gore, which. Makes sense. I... uh, Unsurprisingly, I think the director's right. Um... (laughs) Yeah, odd when that shit happens. Yeah, crazy how that happens. Um... So, when the movie sold well on DVD, Paramount totally backtracked and tried to make a director's cut with the removed footage, but it turns out that all of the footage was somehow lost or destroyed. Devastating news (laughs) because that was probably much more eyeball footage that we missed. Um... So even if the footage is missing we still have many records of exactly what was cut out. So Let's talk a little bit about these missing scenes. Most of them were either adding character and world building stuff, which I miss as a slut for lore, um, or (laughs) much longer and bloodier versions of already existing scenes. But, so you can, you can find all of these cataloged. I picked out a couple of the, the notable cutscenes to my mind. So we have a scene that explains Why the hell Justin went into the black hole? As well as more scenes explaining exactly what it is, how that portal works, all of that kind of stuff, which I would have enjoyed. Yeah. um there's a scene where dr weir hallucinates justin turning into his dead and almost mm. always eyeless wife claire mm. weird don't know why it was there kind of glad mm. it wasn't but maybe it was something deep and meaningful um young man turning into my dead wife though not not my ideal mm. Um I mean, we
1: saw that in life force where the <laughs> you know where he almost kisses picard scene that's pretty hot so. okay
0: that yeah mm. but that's patrick stewart That's anyone smooching Patrick Stewart is hot. Patrick Stewart being in a scene is also hot because he's Patrick Stewart. Because he's Patrick Stewart. Yes. I stand corrected.
1: (laughs) Actually, I sit corrected. Yes.
0: Yeah, we, we both sit corrected and in awe of Patrick Stewart. Um, so, there are also uh, two alternate unused endings. So, one that's similar to the one we saw, uh, that's just without the jump scare of Stark hallucinating Weir when she wakes up from stasis, and instead she's just haunted by the screams of the Event Horizon crew, similarly, you know, establishing her psychological trauma, but without the, the last gory jump scare. The wildly different ending that we didn't get is Miller, uh, Lawrence Fishburne, basically stuck in the hell dimension and fighting the burned man from all of his hallucinations for all eternity. Surprise, surprise, that one didn't test well with screening audiences. It's almost like they wanted a hopeful ending. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, so we missed, we missed all of that. And as I, as I mentioned in the watch along, a lot more gore. A lot more gore. The blood orgy scene, full of a lot more violent sexual content, violent physical content, a lot more blood. We missed a lot of that. We missed longer cuts of um, Jason Isaac's cut open torso. Basically, mm-hmm. if there's a spot that you saw blood here, there's more footage of it that we missed. Mm-hmm. So for anyone devastated by that lost footage, some of it may still be out there. Um, so, back in 2012, one of the producers, Lloyd Levin, said in an interview mm-hmm. that he had found a VHS ta- tape with the original first cut of the movie on it. But there mm-hmm. are conflicting updates on that. So, right. according to Wikipedia, um, director Anderson said that in 2017, no one, including Levin, had watched the tape yet. Mm-hmm. And that Levin had moved to Spain, but that Anderson himself was excited mm-hmm. to watch it at some point. But then, according to IMDb, Anderson changed his his report and at some point somebody did watch it and he said that the quality of the tape was so degraded that it was practically unwatchable and they just tossed it in the trash which seems premature but okay yeah. Um, Very
1: mature, Very premature. Yeah,
0: yeah. Anderson was still hopeful about a director's cut in any case, but there's very little useful Mm. footage that has ever been found. And the most recent update I could find on this was uh, a quote from Jason Isaacs this January, who said that a completed director's cut is nothing more than a conspiracy theory. Um, So unfortunately, it's not looking good.
1: yeah Sam neill had made a comment uh, I forget exactly when he made that comment but he did say that it was like he felt like he, the audiences were watching two completely different movies that yeah. that was his overall feeling walking away from it so he definitely even seemed to have a bit of regret about the fact that some of that footage was lost you know yeah so when one of the actors even feels like wow or you know actually it's more than one of the actors but when the actors really feel like huh you know, it feels like you guys are missing out on something. That really says something. Because usually they don't get too emotionally invested sure. in the project.
0: Yeah, and I mean, there's a lot right. of content there. Like, don't get me wrong. If you look up that, that Jason Isaacs interview, like he he talks about some of the other scenes, the stuff that he feels like people missed out on. And it's not that he didn't want more content to be released. He just doesn't think it's there to find. Right, precisely. Um, so, yeah, it there is living in the director's mind somewhere a radically different cut of this movie um and as much as you know i might not need it it's a shame that we don't have the option because there's a lot of a lot of material that that we lost which would have been but good. thankfully yeah one of
1: those things that we did not lose is the soundtrack
0: yes yeah yes yeah, yeah. like Please ravenous
1: the soundtrack was definitely a milestone it was a fresh blend of techno and score And I would like to note that that's six years before Don Davis and Juno Reactor collaborated on the Matrix Reloaded soundtrack. Mm -hmm. It's definitely the beginning of a new era, which was mixing dance music to enhance the adrenaline of a scene. Um, As to the reboot of this franchise, when it comes to the score, times have changed, uh, with the majority of horror films having relied on music and the fan base expanding as much as it has. Artists like Orbital, KMFDM, The Warp Brothers, Charlie Clouser, and Juno Reactor in the 90s and early 2000s really paved the way for much of the dark electronic music in horror films. And I hope that the new Event Horizon, which we'll talk about later, uh, will seriously consider, um, you know, that they'll consider everything that's been done with electronics and symphony uh, when, when putting together their reboot you know thanks to Blade, you know thanks to event horizon blade underworld and saw we actually have dj's that specialize in darker sounding music um, you know and i hope it, you know adam wingard and his people look at artists like Mars Capone, T- safu or dubstep artist dj figure not in my eyes but in my ears the attention paid to sound and making that lineup with the new franchise is going to be a critical element on whether the new version really flows or falls flat.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's such a good score. It feels like... One of the things that I appreciated is it was never dominating, but it was really Mm -hmm. omnipresent and effective and atmospheric. Like It's the kind of thing where if you go back and you listen to the tracks in isolation, they're spectacular, but when you watch the movie, there was never a point where I was like, distracted from what was going on by the music it was just right. such an organic part of the movie itself which was really nicely
1: done and that's definitely become more and more and more common like quentin tarantino brought that to another level when you know just with everything he's done pulp fiction jackie brown kill bill no matter what quentin tarantino your movie you're watching it the soundtrack is always frankensteined from a bunch of different stuff yeah. it's never really an original score per se um the the thing that we're seeing here is that when we're looking at this next step in music for horror, um, we've other we've seen other artists take the steps take these steps of combining symphonic with electronic, you know. Afterwards, I mean, yeah, people are gonna say like, yeah, we did that with The Shining, we did that with Wendy Carlos. That's true, but we never really got to a point until the early two thousands where we started to mix. The symphonic with the electronic, in a more—I don't know—I would say like not like a—it it sort of bar, it borders somewhere between lounge, and and dance beats. It, sometimes it feels like club music, like rave music. um You know, Figure is probably one of the better examples of that. But there's also Hans dimmer collaborated with Henning Lohner, Martin Tillman, and Fiara Trench when working on the Ring soundtrack, and there was just this really amazing uh mix that came out of that Mm -hmm. score you know you had you had hard rock you had uh lounge techno something that sounded like it came out of the buddha bar or the hotel costes lineup and it was really beautiful because these these, some of these scores they just transcended and in a way it was kind of like you know horror has always had a, a struggle you know, achieving its place as a genre among the other genres. Mm -hmm. For a long time, it was really cast in the light of pornography. And to have these other artists take this music and bring it into a place where it was a a multidimensional experience for the listener, I really thought that that was really, really something. And Mm -hmm. so I hope that when Wingard Mm -hmm. and his team take over and do the next Event Horizon, that they definitely either put together a spectacular soundtrack or that that You know, symphonic score is something where it builds, and it's something where it feels innovative and not lazy. Yeah,
0: yeah. And I mean, in in the general sense, I love seeing any kind of real cross genre collaborations in music. Like that's always so some of the most exciting stuff that comes out. Where the stuff that makes you go, "Oh wait, like we can do that!" Yeah, like Ravenous is a great example, and it's so nice that horror has become an environment that fosters that i think like it's horror is absolutely the area where creatives get to take those risks that they're not necessarily afforded the freedom to explore in other genres so it's it's can't do that in a rom-com no absolutely uh, it's it's lovely to see horror as a venue for musical experimentalism which is what i love to see
1: (laughs) you can't do it in a rom-com but you can do it in a rom-com zone like in Shaun of the dead yes and that's that's really sexy i also Uh, recommend that that's also another really great score is uh the Shaun of the dead score by daniel mudford and pete woodhead it took a little while for that to actually get out onto vinyl that's really amazing if you you know if you guys want to pick up like quality music that comes where they're they're mixing a bunch of great stuff the original soundtrack that was released to the public years ago was great but also this vinyl where they're Dude, going with those scores that's also really amazing because you're hearing it without any of the vocal tracks that are dropped on top of it and you really get to listen to the beats i've been listening to you got red on you in loop for the last couple of weeks so just yeah. want to make mention of that
0: yeah and i want to mm. mention you know lifetime if you do ever decide mm. to make an experimental rom-com mm. hit me up because i have ideas i think we <laughs> can make it happen um yeah but also just to to circle back around because we've now alluded to it several times, the new Event Horizon reboot that is in the works. Um, Paramount and Amazon announced back in 2019 that they were planning a TV series based on Event Horizon, with the original producers Lawrence Gordon and Lloyd Levin coming back to be attached to the project, as well as Adam Wingard, who we love from Your Next, um, set to executive produce and likely direct the project. So fingers crossed! It could be very exciting!
1: I think so, too. A lot of people rag on Wingard because of his Death Note remake, re- yeah. you know, his Death Note adaption. I actually think it was kind of unfair. I do think that he ha- he's very talented. I do think he has the, the, the ability to make this thing fly. Yeah. I, I also think that, I think it's going to be very, very interesting to see what they come up with. Because watching, you know, the first time I heard about the reboot, my concern was like, well, how do you how do you stretch that out? But when you're looking at the relationship between Claire and Doctor Weir, and how mm-hmm. that could be strained, as well as the origins of the technology for yes. the ship,
0: yes, yeah,
1: I definitely get a very strong Necronomicon vibe. There, there are so, so oh. many
0: avenues to explore, like especially. One of the things that I missed in that original cut that they talked about was building those crew dynamics more because Mm -hmm. that original film had such a strong crew of actors. And if they took the time, like, in a miniseries format to take the time to, like... Have an episode all about DJ, the mysterious doctor who's ready to stab people. I would love that! (laughs) Like, take the time, explore the crew, explore the alternate dimensions, see what comes out of that, talk about the, you know, the real realities of how that consciousness came through, what is, like, how, and if you want to get into the science of it, fascinating because this whole thing, the whole premise of the movie operates on the semi-possibly maybe theoretically accurate idea that black holes could be a gateway into other universes um, yep. through multiverse theory, um, which is, again, totally possible. It's what's impossible right now is the idea that anything could survive traveling through a black hole, but right. we, <laughs> that's extraneous for our purposes.
1: <laughs> There's a teeny tiny <laughs> hole in the trash <laughs> compactor. Now, you're not going to fit in there, uh-huh. but... Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. But the idea of once you get into a a multiverse situation, into any alternate universe or parallel universe, things are entirely different. The very laws of physics are different. So, like... It's kind of fuzzy. There's a lot of stuff that's weird in in the original movie. Of like, well, is the ship possessed? Is the person possessed? Is it a spirit? Like, what is it? Take the time to talk about that. What's if the total laws of matter and of consciousness and of everything are different in this parallel universe? The ways to talk about how that interacts with our own universe if it crosses across, you know, across that that boundary. Anyway, all I'm saying is there's a hell of a lot of content there and i definitely think this has the the time to be spaced out and plus too like the pacing of it could be very different there's so much gore so much so many events packed in there if that was stretched out over you know a 10-hour miniseries
1: building easy. the ship itself could be oh know, all the absolutely. accidents that would take place even then there could be or somebody's trying to sabotage the ship and make sure that the ship flies the wrong way uh-huh. there's a hundred different things yeah, that could go wrong. Make this now series, that we, now then that do we the, have time yeah.
0: yeah make the make the event horizon like Series based on the movie, then you could do a whole prequel series based on the first voyage of the people who get stuck there. like <laughs> There is content for days, and then of course you can just branch into a whole Warhammer Forty Thousand series,
1: <laughs> which would like... be cool. There should definitely be Warhammer Forty Thousand Easter eggs in those films. Yes.
0: Oh, I hope so. I hope so because, like, with the uh the relationship between the fans of the two franchises, I I hope that they they do acknowledge that. They I'm sure they that. must. Yeah, I'm sure they, they must. deserve that. There should yeah. be something
1: there and I don't think it should just be miniatures. There should be some sort of strange origami-ish allusion to like the weaponry or something in the cultures mm-hmm. there and just just something there that should sort of like ping back and forth between the two of them. Yeah. I like layering things that are sneaky, right? So oh, those yeah. are those Absolutely. could be fun.
0: 100%. Anyway, I'm extremely excited about The Prospect. It's been pretty quiet on that horizon for a little bit, but you know, there's been shit going on in the world, in case you hadn't yeah. noticed. So, <laughs> yes. fingers crossed, hopefully everything is still mm. on track for us to get the Event Horizon reboot that we so desire. We'd love to see Mike
1: Flanagan direct it, though. Mm. We'd love to see Mike Flanagan get his hands on it after mm. everything we've seen him do with Hill House. and Oh, with Boy yes. Nana. Oh, and yeah. dr sleep the love exactly to see him when helm. i
0: mentioned pacing i was thinking about the haunting of hill house like imagine yeah. event horizon with the timing and the pacing of the haunting of hill house like mm. yeah i'm people would be
1: terrified to watch it It'd be amazing yes yes yeah.
0: yes yeah i i'm ready i'm ready yeah me too <laughs>
1: so aliens (laughs) um so for those of you who don't know the original plot of alien go back and listen to our april episode from 2020 and how dare you for missing an episode yeah it was a great one
0: you do the april april double because this is the hot shit yeah yeah
1: after having nearly been killed by an alien life form ellen ripley and her cat jonesy are found to drift in space and cry asleep ripley wakes up and finds out lots of great things <laughs> definitely the robin hood men and tights moment when blinken gives robin the damage report and ends with oh it's good to be home ain't it master robin <laughs> <clears throat> so um ripley's been asleep for 57 years her daughter, Amanda, who Ripley promised would be home for her 11th birthday, died two years ago. And the Wayland Utani Corporation, for which she works, demotes her for blowing up an expensive spaceship without any evidence. Uh, the reason they don't believe Ripley is because LV-426 is now being terraformed and populated by lots of families. Oh, and Reebok is still around and they're making ugly fucking <laughs> shoes. Oh, it's great to be home, ain't it, Master Ripley? Oh so, God!
0: Yeah, yeah. Hell is here.
1: <laughs> I mean, there's there's so much to talk about. The first person I think about, you know, if, if, this is such a two-edged, you know, sword is, um, Carter J. Burke, played by comedian Paul Riser, the film's human antagonist. Uh, as an author, one of my own characters, Dan the Man Haran from the Great American Nightmare, was inspired by Riser's uh, charisma and sliminess. On a personal note, there are few characters in the horror mythos I despise more than Carter J. Burke. If he was tied in front of me, I would have Negan's baseball bat and I would just grit the same way. Lucille, give Uh me strength to not finish too quickly.
0: I absolutely was sitting here gritting my teeth thinking about crawling through the screen and committing an act of violence. (laughs) Right.
1: (laughs) It's, it's like I just can't decide which one first. Do I have the Hulk like slam him over and over again into the wall, or just bounce his head against the wall a few times? It's so hard to decide. Um, let's see. So um let's start start with the the peripheral stuff. Disney recently acquired the rights to the Alien and Predator franchise, so there are Disney princesses now. The Queen's kind of pissed because she didn't get an upgrade and was kind of offended to tell anyone that she was a queen because you know she didn't even want <laughs> telling her a queen. Uh, she's her own queen. No one tells her she's the queen. Uh, but seriously, Dark Horse Comics had to stop printing their Alien series and the Predator series. Uh-huh. And one thing that's worth mentioning is that there is an Alien graphic novel that was based on the original script by and before changes were made. And that is definitely uh-huh. worth a look. Oh, that's super interesting. I did not know. Back to LV-426, but now it's got a new name, Acheron. What does that mean? It's one of the rivers of woe in the ancient Greek underworld.
0: Bodes super well.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's really great. It's like, how do you pick your names for your fucking spaceships? Yeah, just like, yeah, I wanted it to be like, you know, 10 car pileup is is what its name Uh is.
0: Yeah, this reminds me of my family moved where I went to high school, and um, the street that we moved to had this weird, like, apocryphal-sounding biblical name, and I was like, what the what the fuck is this? Um, and it was because the other family living there were Jehovah's Witnesses, and um, oh. they had, they since they were the first family to move in, they had gotten to pick the, the name of the street, and we're like, great. Um, so I look up who this guy is, he's in fact the... a king from the bible who sacrificed both of his daughters to please god and (laughs) we're about to move into this house and i look at myself and i look at my little sister and i'm like "Mm, good 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 (laughs) this
1: (laughs) bodes well yeah
0: good news my dad hasn't murdered us yet but (laughs) i
1: mean you're still here you survived
0: Mm yeah yep
1: we're watching aliens for the hundredth time i can say this is one of the few franchises where now that disney owns it i'm looking forward to one day seeing a complete reboot done by a computer ai mm-hmm. that thinks yes. like ridley scott and paints like yes. hr geiger
0: yeah written would and directed be a dream
1: written and directed by James Cameron. For those who don't know him, Cameron is the director who broke through with The Terminator starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> he also directed Titanic and later went on to create a film where people reported having avatar depression, but let's focus on the positive.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um I, I've always just known James Cameron as the Titanic guy who was all passionate yeah. about submarines and deep sea shit. And I was like, oh, good for him. I never really put it together that he was also the Terminator guy and also the Aliens guy and also yeah. a dick.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. But
1: another the reason why he can be that way is because he's got a box office to budget of $18.5 million to somewhere between 131 to $183 million on paper. So... Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Aliens is one of the gold standard action movies of the 80s. So he's got a mouth but he can actually back it.
0: Oh yeah, he he makes that money, baby.
1: I will say that Alien de- Aliens definitely set a precedent for the action horror genre and carved a nice niche for pyrotechnicians on horror sets.
0: Oh my god. Yeah. This was this was laying the groundwork for all of the havoc Michael Bay wreaked later.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Michael Bay's like, I can get away with anything. I'm just going to blow shit up. He's you know? like,
0: I'm sorry, I can do what now? Right. Call my fireworks man.
1: <laughs> it's like, you're a writer? You're fired. <laughs> get me Rammstein on the phone.
0: Yeah, so. yeah. It's. It was a wild reboot to take the original very suspenseful sci-fi horror and be like hey surprise it's an action movie now like it's funny that you talk about wanting like the idea of a reboot because this sequel felt much more like a reboot of the franchise yeah. than a sequel to me because Without it was question. just such a radical tone shift to make it mm-hmm. a zany and punchy which is something action movie. every horror
1: fan every every single horror fan complains about that yeah. anybody who is a hardcore fan of alien mm. usually goes i don't hate aliens but it's just it's right. completely different type of movie yes like there yeah. are no, commonalities it's a, it's
0: a different right? entity
1: <laughs> right ron cobb set designer on the uh, ship and tours from alien one designed hadley's hope which was all one piece uh, once again all one piece of pinewood studios you know so imagine what that labyrinth must be like if you if you kind of oh, just God. stick the two together um mm. Cameron's vision brought the Terminator aesthetics, but instead of the Austrian death machine, we get a team of dipshits who trained via Medal of Honor style like the Sovereigns from Guardians of the Galaxy 2. And had they fought that way, the body count on this would have been considerably lower. However, for a couple seconds, I was wishing they'd sent the team from Species instead, because at least those guns, you know, trained on a range. Uh Uh-huh. Um, you know. Um... Two small things about the plot that disrupted my willing suspension of disbelief. A, we can make as many jokes about the oxymoron that is military intelligence as we like. However, I didn't buy that everyone flying to LV-426 didn't know that the fucking facility was powered by a giant Uh fusion reactor.
0: Like, did they get a brief? Did they get any mission brief whatsoever? Because that should have been right at the top in big red letters.
1: (laughs) It's like, (laughs) it's a terraforming planet. Does terraforming mean fusion reactor? Yes. Bad, lazy writing. Um yeah so there's that the second thing is i don't know what cameron was thinking when he was writing because <laughs> he gets to take the credit for writing this mm-hmm. um but the acid blood was massively downplayed and it i don't know was why such no a one letdown.
0: On. it was such a letdown because that's such a major theme in the first one and it's hardly even touched in aliens hardly touched like they get a couple acid burns and they're like yep okay we did that like where's the damage to everything around them mm-hmm. there
1: are three things that redeem this movie three uh, and i will acknowledge that when we're pluralizing alien to aliens we're already taking a big risk so uh-huh. cameron should have known that when he was getting on the boat right <laughs> yeah uh the, two, the 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 first thing is the women right uh ripley's yes. character arc travels from i need to get off the ship and get home to my daughter to my career is over my daughter is dead and my cat's not here to save me get the flamethrower yeah right? <laughs> i do just i want to say the what I, ripley wants the flamethrower now come on <laughs> give me <laughs> my goddamn
0: flamethrower yeah i just want to say i'm so glad sigourney weaver got a best actress nom for this because one yeah. she fucking deserves it she's a totally really talented queen and two it was the first ever nomination for an actress in an action movie and fuck genre supremacism yeah, uh, yeah exactly. yeah absolutely yeah.
1: I mean, the the other thing was the queen itself, right? The yes. xenomorph queen was an it, it was it was also an achievement, right? Mm-hmm. Um, effects wise, it was an achievement. You know, you know, later on we get the Tyrannosaurus Rex from Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. This was a monumental occasion in convincing technical effects. Was be- she was a, she was a sight to behold, you know. Uh, I always, you know, I always see her though, when I just hear this ominous, Sir Mix-a-Lot music playing there. It's Just this huge train. It's like, I just wish they would reshoot that with dun 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 dun. You know, I'll even when that. they're talking about where the eggs come from in the science lab, I wish it would be like eerie string music. Dun 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 dun. And speaking yeah. of music. Um, that's the third thing that redeems this movie it is once again james horner putting cameron on his back and carrying him out like like forrest gump and the guy out of the fire in vietnam okay um the alien soundtrack became so iconic that in the action genre you'll notice keys from uh bishop to queen and a lot of 90s action trailers uh 24 to be precise i remember reading 24 and going god damn 24 and then i thought about it that's actually true because i you know listen to james horner's queen to bishop and then go you know listen to like any big trailer from the 90s and that was the song so the music was everything and then you know going back to dead space um go listen to jason graves's dead space soundtrack i left my heart in med lab 3 is probably one of the best examples of where you can see james horner's influence on jason graves i mean the guy everybody in the team that designed dead space acknowledges that aliens played a big role there and it, to me though i always feel like 24 trailers we're so spoiled today brothers and sisters right like disney audio machine and samuel kim are dropping fat beats every two weeks 20 years ago i did loop duel of the fates now i'm on my living room and i'm getting my baron zemo on walking to i came for the low it's like it's kind of amazing how how far we've gone with music but it's because of adrenaline movies adrenaline action horror it's really kind of one of the big things that paved the way for this So I think it is important. It it paved the way for those, you know, those epic trailer, you know, mixes that we hear all the time from places like, you know, from artists like X-Ray Dog, again, Samuel Kim, or Audio Machine. It's just, it's it's quite amazing. Yeah.
0: And it's honestly, it's also just a triumph that the soundtrack is as good as it was, given how little time the composer had to work on it. James Horner, like... He, like I said in the watch-along, he literally wrote the the music for that giant battle sequence between Ripley and the Queen, literally overnight, because his recording schedule was so rushed. Cameron butchered the soundtrack and was pulling cuts from here, there, and everywhere, and somehow it worked! This is yet another instance of James Cameron being the worst to work with, but somehow putting out a good product. (laughs) Like, yes, like it's awesome. good. I can't deny that, but man, do right. I feel for for he's, Horner. He's
1: he's well, he's good at his job, but there are people who have always believed that he need to be quote reined in. Yeah, um, and that is. That is kind of it. You know, it's a director who takes a lot of the, a director takes a lot of the flack, whether a movie succeeds or fails, right? Like you don't blame the lighting guy when a, when a movie fails. Right. Usually the actors put themselves, put a lot of distance between them and the director. And then they kind of inch closer as the movie gets better, right? Mm-hmm. So there's not so much where I can, I can really say that Cameron doesn't. Deserve the credit he gets. I can only imagine that he probably got burned earlier in life, and that that oh, probably yeah. made him a little bit, a little bit rough around the edges to work For
0: with. For sure. I mean, he he was not like coming from a glamorous background. Like this is right, exactly. the thing that I couldn't believe that he's the fact that he signed on to this was a miracle because yeah. he almost didn't get the gig and only did because he gained legitimacy after Terminator was a success. Like that was his first big major success. Before that, he was a truck driver. He saw Alien back when he was working as a like cross-country truck driver. He described it as a, quote, perfect movie, and initially couldn't imagine directing this because he couldn't imagine what a sequel would have to offer. (laughs) So going from a truck driver, seeing Alien, being like, ah, yes, this is the perfect movie, to then coming full circle, doing Terminator, directing Aliens, and being like, surprise, it's an action movie now, is... just a wild turn of events
1: (laughs) one of the weirdest things i've always wanted i've always wondered about with cameron is the one aesthetic choice is the mention of the word xenomorph during the military briefing Mm -hmm. i mean that's one weird aesthetic choice you know what's a bigger fucking weird aesthetic choice casting a white woman to play a latina (laughs) marina (laughs) oh oh, you guys thought we weren't gonna talk about that (laughs) we're fucking talking about that
0: oh my god yeah yeah let's let's talk about it for a a hot second because um this was a fun one where you know cameron really went through and made sure that every every marine had a backstory for their character and they knew who they were like this is how we knew, like, Hudson was trained on VIs, like this and that, like all this stuff. Except, uh, Vasquez and Drake, um, blonde eyebrow squinty man who was friend with, with Vasquez, they grew up together in a Hispanic slum and were both drafted into the colonial marines from Juvie. Weird choices were made right. given that both of the actors are very white. Is anyone surprised? Like, no, unfortunately, not really. Right. But, <laughs> but like,. Vasquez is the real crime here because, like, they did everything short of physically change her skin color, like, they had her change her haircut, they had- they gave her brown contacts, they painted freckles on her skin, and, like, gave her a different accent, like, they did everything they could to pass her off as Latina rather than actually just hire a Latina actress.
1: And for those of us who are listening and you're like, well, what's the big deal? I would just like to address why in case you're not in case it's not apparent as to why that's a big deal. Skin color isn't really a costume in case Uh you didn't know. The other thing is also come from a multiracial family. I've met people not in my family, but I've met friends of my family and friends in the horror field where they have altered their skin color to fit into a certain group. And that is horrible there's no and i'm not gonna shy away from that. It is horrible it's incorrigible it's just it's terrible that we live in a world where you have to do that um whitewashing your skin or having to darken your skin is ridiculous in any field it's completely crazy and yeah. ludicrous and um it's just when we look at this uh it's i'm sure that you know, I I really hope I'm not sure. I really hope that James Cameron would not do this all over again. I really God, hope that hope he would so. sit there and go, "Oh yeah, this was yeah. a stupid fucking and mistake." And the other I thing about it,
0: this. it's so unnecessary. It's so right. unnecessary because there is no specific reason that Vasquez had Needed to be Latina. To
1: be Latina. There no.
0: is nothing in the script. That indicates that she is Latina. The only thing that. It's just the implied backstory. And the choices then made. In costuming and makeup. And styling to carry that out. Nothing would have changed. If they just let her show up and look like yeah. a white woman not a single thing would have changed about the character and it would have gone just fine or alternately it's the
1: lengths to which they yeah went that that it crazy
0: yeah if you had decided that it was important to have a latina character cast a latina woman because the idea of like it's the lengths that people will go to not actually allow minorities minorities to represent themselves in film is Ridiculous. Insane. But then also, like, it's the other part of it too is that it's just a lazy stereotype of like mm-hmm. talking about femininity and the women who were allowed to be tough and allowed to be butch and the idea that it needs to be a Latina woman in order to do this has its own set of stereotypes that's involved in that. Like, basically, it's a whole fucked up mess and yep. it shouldn't have been done. It shouldn't yeah. have. Like, and again, this is no no shade to Jeanette Goldstein. She was a great right. actress, and I'm sure she had very little say in what happened here. Exactly. But hire Latina actresses to play Latina roles. That's it. That's More. it.
1: Yep. Yeah pretty simple and you know that we saw that with michelle rodriguez and avatar and we Mm hope to god that you know cameron will continue to you know be on his best behavior or that the casting director will smack him in the face the next time he has that kind of thought just right upside the head smack
0: smack smack this it also feels like an especially insulting choice given how forward-thinking the casting process for Alien was, like, given the yeah, gender-blind casting precisely. that Alien had, and I don't know if I've seen it specifically talked about, if it was race-blind casting as well, but it it seems pretty in line with what was happening. Like, anyway, the, the whole point with the, the casting of Alien 1 <laughs> was, you know, the idea that these were kind of characters that anyone could play, so then to just go so far backwards in the process of like freedom of character and representation in the sequel feels really disappointing.
1: Looking at the United States Marine Corps, right? That's Mm -hmm. the other funny thing. They called Mm -hmm. it the colonial Marines, which is actually a very specifically British. um, Yeah. Yeah. Kind of thing um to call them you know to well don't people...
0: don't i mean america is plenty colonial in our own right but sure yes.
1: but no <laughs> but british it was terminology kind of like, it's a very strange kind of wording to that yes, as well yeah. the other thing was you know that was the other thing It just the whole thing felt inorganic when you're looking yeah. at it and you're like i don't know where this is coming from but it feels very inaccurate in its representation so mm-hmm. yeah um but yeah i mean the rest of it was you know okay you know yeah. i mean lance enrickson did a fantastic job you know <laughs> pumpkin head brings the pain as he always does he's a very talented actor uh michael bean one of my favorite actors you mm-hmm. know uh yeah. bean plays hicks and he, plays you know Henson. you know kyle reese from the terminator and um the sheriff from planet terror you know, who's just amazing um being, I've also met him in real life. Just a fantastic person. Lovely. Um,
0: yeah, and Bill Paxton, <clears throat> who has the the notable credit of being the only person to be killed by and by Alien Predator and Terminator on film. Yes, like, exactly. That's, that's championship and also- role. <laughs>
1: I don't think the the craziest thing was part of me was really annoyed during the watch along during his little game of phallic show and tell during the drop (laughs) scene Uh Um, and then I realized he did the same character in True Lies and I love the fact that and that's also a Cameron film Cameron also directed True Lies and I keep thinking, you know, he actually pisses his pants in mm-hmm. True Lies, and I really love that. I think Cameron even knew, like, okay, if we do this again, we really have to like reflect upon the character, you know, the true character <laughs> of what happens. And I wonder if Paxton thought of that or if Cameron thought of that because, you yeah. know,
0: yeah, Paxton it does... also reminds
1: me a bit of Stuntman Mike with his cowardly mm-hmm. lion act once he gets mm-hmm. shot, right? Absolutely, because that's, that's why that's why Russell that. took the part.
0: <laughs> yeah it's and it's funny that he just like he plays such an absolute asshat like yeah. because he's just he sounds like such a sweetheart like i still love the story of like him being best friends with carrie hen who played newt like they right. hung out all the time on set and he kept apologizing nonstop for swearing in front of her in every scene <laughs> he was like right. i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm so sorry i'm sorry
1: Like <laughs> yeah, bill paxton was a very sweet man yeah it was yeah he was he loved the fans the fans loved him He was a great guy. He will be missed.
0: Sure, sure. Speaking of not sweet, I do just... There's one paragraph um, I wanted to read from Wikipedia's section on the filming of this movie. Um, Okay. Yeah, it's just a quick little snippet that stuck with me. Uh, The paragraph begins, Filming was tumultuous. Cameron, an American, was unfamiliar with British film industry traditions such as tea breaks, which interrupted production for up to an hour each weekday. He was frustrated at losing hours of filming every week. End quote. Okay. Now, don't get me wrong, there were so many other problems with, uh, between cultural differences and what sounds yeah. like Cameron being, let's be generous, flexible and abrasive. But I really prefer to focus on the chaos caused by tea breaks. Mm. Like, I, I think that's, <laughs> that's a great way to think about it. I'm just like, I love the idea of, the entire crew being bitter, being like this American bastard is not giving us our 15 for tea. And I don't understand.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you guys kick the tea into the Harbor. We're kicking your shit in the can and we're taking our tea. Okay. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. This is a funny one where I'm just like, I I've seen this come up a couple times where I'm like, why do they keep sending Americans to film movies in England? <laughs>
1: There's also an interesting parallel to be observed. Whereas Alien 1 set a group of unprepared people against a single creature and horror ensued, Alien sets a group of people who are supposedly forewarned and prepared of what's coming send people who are supposed to be trained and they still fail miserably. And I just want to say that the problem with it isn't the number of aliens or even... um, it's just that if you if you keep approaching this like an action film, there was no way you were going to be able to hold that disturbing creepiness. No, and it just it needed it. You know, you can't tell me that creepiness isn't possible in a horror movie where there's a number of of antagonists because zombie movies because sure. you know yeah. I mean, there's I mean, any there number no of way.
0: horror movies that is terrifying. It's, it's right. possible,
1: right. So it's not that it's impossible. It's just that there were the plot hole. You know, the plot holes made it harder to believe and buy into. It's a great no. You know, I I still consider it one of the greatest no-brainers that you can watch. You know, pound Mm -hmm. for pound, it's one of those movies you switch it on, you switch your brain off, you watch it. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's it's great. Mindless
0: movie. I mean, I think just to to pause for a second, like I feel like part of the the reason that the impact of the aliens hit. A little lower in this one is in the original, it's about, you know, the crew doing their best against a super powerful predator that's it like it's unstoppable, its power is unmatched, it's all about that sheer, like, disparity between <coughs> them. In the second, because everybody's so well-armed and stuff. It feels like luck of the draw. Like, it feels like there's no real skill element that decides who lives and who dies for the most part, except Ripley. Precisely. It's just, like, a roulette yeah. wheel of, like, well, who dies this time? Like, it takes away a lot of that tension.
1: It also feels like a fight choreographer would have been yeah. more appropriate because when we're looking at Alien versus Predator, specifically, there, if you look at the comic books they're terrifying <laughs> they <clears throat> the comic for dark horse did such an amazing job with alien versus predator mm-hmm. you are reading it the whole way and you're like this is the most dystopian thing i have ever read it's fantastic um but when you're looking at it through cameron's lens the problem is that it's not that cameron isn't talented it's just that he really didn't do his execution properly the the movements of the aliens you know there was a lot of time just to get one alien to move properly to start sticking guys into suits and moving them super quick and there's just you know it's like shooting a kubrick film super fast it's just it's not the same animal at the same yeah. day at the end of yeah. the day it's not that you cannot ha- it is not that you cannot have that pacing that is not impossible it is not that you cannot have an insurmountable force that is also you know they were against an insurmountable force that was not the problem the problem was the execution the problem was that the aliens died too easily they Mm -hmm. blew up too quickly right and all even even the people who were dying um, and the comic books, they have people come back to life and have chestburster after chestburster come out, out of them. And that, to me, was a way more of a fuck you, oh my God moment. <laughs> you know, when you're reading that in the comic, you're like, wow, that would have looked terrible on screen. You know, if you're seeing more than one chestburster rip mm-hmm. out of a person, um, yeah, I and think I mean, that it would have had a greater gravity.
0: Yeah, the chestbursters and, like because the alien is terrifying, but when you get into the chest bursters and the parasite kind of idea, that's where so much of the yeah. psychological horror came from for me. Like the idea of something literally using you as a living host to become this horrifying predator. Like that is the nightmarish nature of it. And that was just basically skimmed right over in this one to focus on yeah. like ah, an alien's coming. Ah, 55 aliens are coming. Oh right. s- how many bullets are left? <laughs> like, right. It it took away the parts that made you go like, "Oh my God, it's under my skin."
1: <laughs> right, and for me, that's the reason why I always feel a lot of respect for Paul Reiser. For, for you know, not just for doing the part, because mm-hmm. he was you know normally everything for him was comedy up until that point. He had done some serious stuff, but he had never really done anything of that nature. And yeah. he really went out on a limb.
0: Yeah, this is to fascinating. Play
1: it was really I it was unexpected mm-hmm. and it was it was super talented. Yeah. And it was just amazing to watch.
0: Yeah, I mean as as an actor like there's this idea that in general comedic actors have an easier time translating to serious stuff than necessarily serious actors have to translate to comedy. Mm. Um and like I totally get that comedy I think adds a lot of versatility, adds a lot of mm. timing. Love that. That's all fine. But to go from doing comedy right into being the most detestable character in the entire movie—that
1: is Queen Cersei from Game of bold.
0: It's yeah. fucking bold, like he. Yeah. That is such a one eighty, like just full shift, and he does it so well because mm, I hated gracefully. him with every fiber of my being.
1: <laughs> Which means he did a fantastic yeah, job.
0: absolutely. Right. Like that is one of the handfuls of people. Like they're um of, like, actors who just one role, they are so violent that they will be ruined for me. And that, to me, is a testament. Like, a true testament. Yeah. Like, the, the one that always sticks for me is... Poor, lovely Damien Lewis, who is just such a good actor. I saw him in some historical drama when I was like 14, where he was this vile, manipulative, rapist, terrible character. I could not watch him in another thing for probably the next 10 years without being repulsed by seeing him on screen. <laughs> and and it's incredible because he's such a good actor. He yeah. seems like a good guy. And Burke is one of those roles where not perhaps not as visceral but i think i would Stuff have a hard there. time going to watch him in a comedy after this and being like oh right. yeah there's that fun guy <laughs> like, like i'm like no i've got some venom left over
1: <laughs> right and that's the amazing thing he really he really brought that out in all of us and that's you know, that's the magic of acting yeah so
0: yeah absolutely speaking of other other characters who i love bishop bishop oh, yeah. oh my god Oh my god. Like I could I could just turn this into a Lance Hendrickson fa- fan cast. Like I, I was so happy. I smitten from the moment he walked on stage. I like I am a sucker for any Android character as a rule, but he was so good.
1: He is also that friendly in real life. I, in case anybody wonders, Lance is that friendly in real life. That I love is, him. Yeah. Either that or he's very good at pretending to be the Android twenty four seven. But yeah. Eh, eh. He's, He's so
0: delightful. Character. Like, absolute perfect character. I loved him beginning to end. Um, also, like, so the thinking about his character and specifically his android design led me down mm-hmm. a little rabbit hole. Um, I'm, I'm not doing a full deep dive on this because I'm, of course, saving okay. that for something much more important. Um, <laughs> much more important, much more emotionally devastating for me personally, but, I do just want to talk about Best Boy Bishop for a minute, um, and specifically the significance of his appearance. So Hmm. I mean, obviously, Bishop is an android. We know this. Ripley freaked out about this. He had to get a whole redemption arc because of her personal bias, yada, yada, yada. One of the things that was worming around in my brain pretty much as soon as he came on screen was the question of why they would design a robot who is visually flawed. Now. This is no shade to Lance Henriksen. I am not saying he is an unattractive man. What I am saying is, if you could design the perfect pseudo-human, why would you give it wrinkles, eye bags, and a receding hairline? So it's a much more complicated question than you might think, and there are a lot of factors that come into play. But of course, as with many robot cases, the most fundamental factor is fear. So, humans are pretty much inherently afraid of robots, it's, it's a common trope, we know this, psychology knows this, but even more so, we are afraid of robots that look like us. So the first thing to mention is Uncanny Valley. The Uncanny Valley, it's a pretty well-documented concept now. The idea that somewhere between cartoonish faces and human faces, there is a certain approximation of humanness that doesn't quite get there, which disturbs the absolute shit out of us. Terrifying. Basically, almost nobody is scared of a Barbie doll, but some baby dolls get freaky. And once things get robotic... Once they start moving and trying to act like humans, most of us want to hit the off switch and maybe light it on fire. So,
1: <laughs> yeah. I heard Whitney Cummings saying that it was an, in, in you know, Whitney Cummings, the comedian Whitney Cummings, was making a comment that because she had her own uh, robot double made of her, mm-hmm. um, which is, we'll, we'll post the link to it. It's really funny. Um... Where she's talking she said that our uncanny valley is actually a, an internal defense mechanism telling us not to mate with said thing, and that's mm. the reason why we have the base repulsion because it doesn't look quite right. Mm. So it's like, don't fuck that thing, I believe was quite a wizard quote. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like yeah, you're not supposed to fuck that. And then it's like,, yeah, you're not gonna tell me what the fuck okay that. <laughs>
0: And yet we still we
1: still draw pictures of Predator with boobs and, you know, and all sorts of, you know, hentai galore.
0: Yeah. uh, Yeah. It's not looking quite right. has not stopped a lot of people wanting to fuck anime characters. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And so because of this, like some people say that we should just scrap the idea of trying to make robots look human altogether and stick to less visually threatening models. But the ambitious Android fans out there just see the Uncanny Valley as a threshold to be conquered. If we can come out on the other side with something perfectly human, it should theoretically not freak us out. (laughs) (laughs) Now, as we know, humans are flawed. A face that is too perfect reads as unreal, which is why many artists have to be taught the importance of facial flaws if they're trying to achieve realism like Artists have to be taught to put in imperfections in a face so that it doesn't look fake. Um, sidebar, as you kind of brought up, this is also why so many sex dolls are really fucking creepy. They're right in the uncanny valley niche of almost human and also way too perfect. Because most yep. designers went ahead and say, yeah, just slap a perfectly symmetrical face on her and start worrying about the holes. Um, right. So and you would think they'd
1: have learned that by now and maybe read a pamphlet or two uh, and it's like, mean, why isn't this working it's like yeah. dude you need to put this thing's face next to the fireplace for about two minutes uh-huh. and let it droop a little no
0: don't get me wrong there are some luxury sex doll designers out there who would probably take umbrage with that i'm not talking about you <laughs> I, your bajillion dollar sex dolls are, are perfect i'm sure I, I just
1: keep thinking of krieger from archer where he's like Where did you get the skin? Hobo! (laughs) You're (laughs) like, oh god. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, no. Um.
0: So imperfection serves another purpose because we recognize it as human. Um, Research from the University of Lincoln in 2015 shows that people are less likely to bond with robots that don't have personality flaws. So when robots followed perfect behavioral algorithms, being perfectly polite, being perfectly civil, following every rule that humans are supposed to follow, Humans could have a civil co- Inver- uh, sorry, humans could have civil interactions with them, but they didn't establish the bond and rapport that designers were hoping for in social companion robots, which is this whole area of robotics that's being invested in currently. So in order to foster real connection, the robots needed to have programmed flaws. They have to make mistakes, get tired, get overexcited and have their own biases and opinions, which is all the stuff that makes us like some people and not like others. It's a personality. So. If you extend that same principle to appearance, it's not a far leap to see that, you know, a perfect appearance would hinder bonding as well. We want to see relatable imperfections mirrored back at us. And in the absolute shallowest sense of it, We've probably all heard the idea that you've got to have at least one uglier friend to make you look good, which is <laughs> an unkind sentiment, but it's rooted in the truth that most people are desperate to feel attractive, and people being more attractive than you can be really threatening. So. If you're a super duper hot person, you probably have people that that are jealous of you. I imagine probably. Um, so now, if that rob— imagine if the robot who was programmed to be perfect has all of the world's information at their grasp and literally can't die. Was also the hottest person imaginable You would hate them You would absolutely hate them
1: So basically Chris Hemsworth With immortality
0: Yeah yeah exactly (coughs) that And also just a super genius So therefore Give that robot flaws so that you see it as a friend And not a threat and then, you know, little sidebar, but this this whole dream... So basically,
1: make it the guy from Ghostbusters. Make it give him the intelligence of the secretary from uh-huh. Ghostbusters.
0: Uh-huh, yeah. Kristen
1: Wiig should be thrilled you've with gotta, that. Okay. Yeah,
0: you've got to give it su- some flaws. That can be... I, so if you're gonna make it hot, it basically your robot has to be a himbo. It's true.
1: Uh- <laughs> <laughs> oh guys, I can't wait till we get to that part of our history. I can't wait. <laughs> himbo
0: robots when? Imagine imagine if the Event Horizon Intro <laughs> him, Susan. <laughs> yeah, in the Event Horizon Intro had been like twenty fifteen, we established the first manned moon colonies. Twenty twenty two, introduction of the Himbo robot army. <laughs> Society ascended. (laughs) yeah but all of this reminds me of the time where i almost applied to be the face of an army of robots because i don't know if you remember back in october 2019 there was this article going viral where a british company who was trying to mass produce companion robots for the elderly was looking for a quote-unquote friendly face to be the model for their bots (laughs) and promising 130 thousand dollars for the person selected Nice. I personally love the notion of there being hundreds of me out there having tea with old folks in retirement homes and I'm still really bummed that past me never got my shit together to apply. So basically, if you are trying to build a ro- robot army and have a bunch of money to throw my way for face rights, hit me up! I'd I'd love the opportunity.
1: <laughs> yeah, seriously. It's a good idea.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Bishop Best Boy is, is the culmination of that. And also... a. Th- Just a thrilling rabbit hole to go down of Android technology. Also, speaking of of androids, I do want to mention that uh, Lance Henriksen continued to go on and be the model for Carl Manfred in Detroit Become Human, which is incredibly apropos, considering that the whole game is about android sentience and personhood. And while we're on the topic of video games, how fucking appropriate that I made Mass Effect references in both watch-alongs, because A, the Mass Effect Trilogy Remaster comes out next month, and it is my every waking thought, especially after the movies we watched this month giving me big Mass Effect nostalgia, and B, again, Lance Henriksen, who played Bishop, um, played Admiral Hackett in Mass effect it all comes full circle and we we truly i i cheer for any actor who crosses over in his you're missing game something yes which what
1: blade runner 2077 because blade runner's world is supposed to be living in the same world as uh redley scott's alien
0: oh they yeah share, i don't i don't know shit about a a blade runner, runner but that yeah they show totally a common universe sense.
1: and that's the other thing that's fascinating about it because if we look at cyberpunk 2077 it's all one big circle yeah. it's a gigantic circle they're all yeah. one big commentary on they're all one really big commentary on on dystopia <laughs> how sure. we get there i mean that's we, just
0: you, a genre in itself cuz if, if you're talking about the cyberpunk connection cyberpunk connects to blade runner cyberpunk connects to altered carbon cyberpunk connects to, like all over the place which every dystopian future version place, which is that yeah.
1: we treat e- we treat each other terribly is actually the punchline mm-hmm. of all these movies the the punchline is we really need to work on our interpersonal skills before we start building copies of ourselves because if they're as shitty as we are we're doomed that's mm-hmm. actually what I take away from Blade Runner and Alien and Aliens and everything else. It's like, it's like you said you were going to destroy the aliens. No, no. But think about the money and the military applications, and you're like, you're a piece of shit, <laughs> All
0: right. Yeah. It's almost like science fiction has known that capitalism is a great threat to the future for a for long many time. Years.
1: Yes, <laughs> and it has. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is. It just hits us. It just it science fiction yeah. desperately desperately hits us as hard as it can because it's like please don't become this you don't want to do yep. this please don't become this hey, yeah man.
0: so uh speaking of capitalism <laughs> should i should i dive down the the real rabbit oh
1: bowl? yes please
0: <laughs> so all right uh, buckle up let's do it let's talk about the fucking shoes <laughs> <laughs> uh so the shoes that ripley wears in aliens the Stompers that, uh, that have become so iconic. They are essentially a modified Reebok basketball sneaker. They were designed by Tuan Lee, who worked from existing Reebok basketball sneaker models to keep costs low and production fast. The Stompers were built from the mold of the Reebok BB 5600 and modified with Velcro straps where the laces originally were. That was partially because his one real instruction in making the shoe, really his only instruction, was that the shoe had to come off easily for the grand finale where the alien queen pulls off Ripley's shoe as she's pulled out the airlock, so laces had to be removed From the equation So these shoes were pretty instantly Iconic but this was a new Thing this was before Back to the Future 2 um, created this demand For movie sneakers and These stompers the the alien Stompers actually wouldn't be released to the public Until 2016 Alright So let's flash forward to the 2016 Stomper release. Firstly, thank you, Dean from GQ, for helpfully helpfully chronicling the journey of the Stomper sneakers that I didn't lose my mind doing scattered shoe research at 1am last night, as I am wont to do. So Reebok has been... Up, unlimited edition shoe releases and colorways. Mm-hmm. This is pretty unsurprising because the, there has been such a huge boom of sneakerhead culture and this right. has every shoe company putting out collabs with everyone from General Mills to 7-Eleven. Um. Right. But Reebok finally pulled the Stompers out of the vault for the movie's 30th anniversary in 2016, and they released three shoes. They did two mid-ankle colorways in blue and red, this mid-height was similar to the style that Bishop wore in the movie, and then the high-top replica of Ripley's pair, and those Stompers now cost over $1,000 when they're resold online. Of course, all of them sold out instantly. Um, yeah. There was also a fun, zesty little bit of controversy when Reebok didn't include women's sizes for Ripley's literal shoes. Um, they basically tried to retcon that afterwards by being like, um, actually, they're all unisex, but they just happen to follow men's sizing.
1: This is, is like cute? when they did the fucking Ghostbusters reboot with the women and then there were no fucking female Ghostbuster mm-hmm. toys. They had mm-hmm. all... They had, I swear to Christ, it, it it's like they just don't get the fucking message when they're nope. doing it. They put out the original Ghostbusters as action figures during the release mm-hmm. of the 2016 Ghostbusters. But the girls? No. Female Ghostbusters were there as action figures. And you're mm-hmm. sitting there going, what the actual fuck is your problem?
0: Yep. Yep. And I mean, like, I could go down this rabbit hole as somebody... Oh, of, like, I could do
1: that for weeks, unfortunately. Yeah, as yeah. somebody who's like, I mean, we had that with of, real fucking spacesuits, right? Mm-hmm, Isn't that another thing? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, as somebody who's a fan of sci-fi, who's a fan of, you know, horror, who's a fan of video games, finding merchandise designed for women, like is a relatively new thing, honestly, and for many especially clothing things, you have to go to specially designed like indie companies that will actually make fan gear for women. It's ridiculous. I own so many pieces of big baggy men's clothing that don't fit me right because I wanted a Mass Effect shirt. So, <laughs> Huh. okay yeah that's that's we don't have the time today
1: <laughs> nah. oh i'd be willing to split into two commentary tracks to be honest. <laughs> um, honestly it pisses me off that much yeah. i've had a moment where I, i've i've had that before where i've gone into a sports store gone in with a female friend gone in with my wife and they can't give a, a coat the right size it's mm-hmm. not like it's not like a one it's not oh, no. one problem. It's like no, no,
0: no. It's many. The, the
1: problems. problem is the problem is pretty bad. Oh and yeah, it's and just, and
0: on top of that, if you do find something made for you, it costs forty percent more than the same product made precisely. for a man.
1: it's complete bullshit. Uh-huh. It's it's bullshit
0: yeah and so some. yeah so fuck you reebok for for that yeah. little oversight um and
1: i would like to point out that the converse is still cost like you know the converse versions are well like what was 25 dollars to modify and yeah. get the original ripley's
0: yeah, hella cheap. yeah i'll take
1: my chances with mm-hmm.
0: that yeah so anyway sneakerheads can and, i
1: can yeah. i interject one yeah, yeah okay i'd like to interject something though i'm sorry um there is one thing i'd like to say which is that horror is definitely something where the genre is greatly celebrated now. The genre wasn't mm-hmm. as popular maybe 20, 30 years ago because we didn't have as much merchandising. But the problem is like when you have companies like Funko Pop, um, you know, Loot Crate, all these other places where they're, you know, the, the, the problem is that we've gone fucking nuts with our merchandising. Mm-hmm. And I just want to say, like, listen, if you're Kirk Hammett from Metallica, no shade to you bro you you keep collecting your shit you're awesome keep 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 that coming you too Guillermo del Toro keep keep stacking those warehouses that's great somebody needs to remember in the event of an atomic apocalypse that there was once a Funko Pop you know Jack Torrance (laughs) that's frozen great keep keep that shit going the problem is that for the rest of us um I do feel that the the materiality of it has gotten to such a point where uh we've gone crazy in terms of all the horror shit that we stock. I'm not saying don't do it. Right. Yeah. I am saying that, you know, there's a point where maybe you don't want to hoard all of this. You know, maybe you don't need, you know, I love fright rags. I love Benjamin Scrivens. Benjamin Scrivens is one of my favorite people. Um, You know, there's nothing wrong with if you want all your t-shirts to be fright rags, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that in your wardrobe. There's nothing wrong with that with your hoodies or anything. Um, but after a certain point, you know you just got to get to a point where you go okay it's enough stuff now and that's just it like looking at these shoes going for like a thousand dollars is ridiculous and watching people like in to continue to perpetuate something that was essentially a it was intended to be a woman's shoe to take something that was intended to be a woman's shoe Put it only in men's sizes and then sell it for like a grand apiece is a smack in the face of you, the consumer, and of your fellow female friends. It's just crazy. Mm -hmm. I mean, this
0: too, like this is a much bigger fashion conversation because uh, once you get into sneaker culture, the yeah, sure. the resale market, the prices Yeah, of course. Like, I only know the tip of the iceberg and that's wild, but it crosses over perfectly with the intersection that's typically built towards women, the idea of, like, our investment in the fashion industry and how, yeah. you know, you should pay $4,000 for a handbag <laughs> like,
1: Right.
0: It's, it's the same thing of artificial markups for designer labels. It's, that's, that's what it is. Yeah. And I don't think that's going to stop anytime soon, but it is...
1: It would think, if people got realistic.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, it's a, and it's a tricky intersection once that crosses over with fan merchandise and these limited releases and resale value skyrockets, and it's it's inevitable but disappointing.
1: Yeah, sure. not telling you guys how to spend your money. No, it's your mean, money. money. Oh, In please, fact, I'm like, very against telling people how to spend their money, but I will say that if you're going to spend your money maybe consider who you're giving your money to and maybe how that affects the rest of the world you know mm-hmm. there are people who come in and don't don't get me wrong i have no illusions about the fact that we live in a world where everything is obtained unfairly and that we all live in a system which is almost impossible to break
0: there is no ethical consumption under late capitalism
1: <laughs> precisely precisely <laughs> i have no illusions about that but when we're making individual choices listen if you need those shoes so bad god bless you you know pay the thousand yeah. dollars obviously you wanted them that bad um i hope they bring you great joy
0: yeah
1: you know on the other uh-huh. side of it if you're on the fence about them i'd seriously spend if you're like just a fan of the alien series i don't see the problem with spending 25 dollars on a pair of chucks you know uh-huh. because it, modified chucks because yeah. it's just so much better
0: yeah also like yeah. In just as a general note, in the world of like fan merchandise, there are so many various like smaller production houses that make specific merch. Like, smaller companies, like looking at somebody like Sanchi, who's like carved out a niche for making generally video game merchandise and started as a small company. And wow. so they've contracted out to get the rights to all of these characters, relatively small crew making high quality stuff. Great. Maybe, you know. Think about those kinds of purchases, or like buying handcrafted stuff from Etsy instead of buying a thousand dollar pair of pair of sneakers from a scalper. That was just, ma-
1: yeah, from a yeah. mass retailer. Yeah,
0: yeah, from a mass yeah. retailer, from a scalper. <laughs>
1: yeah, just a, just an aside. One thing I really dig is I do buy a lot of my stuff that's handcrafted from Etsy. The Agatha Harkness mm-hmm. brooch, you know, somebody did it. It's actually of the Three Graces. For those of you who are curious, um, oh yeah, you know, I found like, pretty few. Yeah, those I- are.
0: Am I shipping Dragon Age replica jewelry over the seas from Europe? Yes, absolutely I am. And also, but like, again, just to to echo, like, this is not in any way a dig on fan merchandise. Like, the amount of video game clothing I own is obscene, and I'm not going to stop.
1: (laughs) Right. There's nothing wrong with, there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing, or I'm not saying anything against decorating your life. The way that you feel is appropriate to
0: yeah you. and the stuff that makes right. you happy like yeah do what makes but you after happy a
1: certain point start to you know maybe just you know somebody always used to say to me you can watch whatever you want but watch it with open eyes you know yeah. definitely yes. look into it yeah you know, take the time to maybe think about how that product is made think about who that you know who the the, the funds mm-hmm. go to and whether or not you want to support that or not because if you start to see that something's surrounded by controversy and you feel that that controversy is valid i think that that's definitely worth taking a step back and considering over a pair of shoes right uh-huh. so just just a uh, thought
0: yeah like do you want to talk about the beauty industry for a minute cuz my god we're not <laughs> going to we're not going to cuz we'd be here for years so back to yeah you. well <laughs> Right. Anyway, so returning to Reebok, the sneakerheads and the nerds alike were super hyped and Reebok, like every good corporate entity, went, hey, we like money, let's make some more. So not long after the initial Stomper launch, Reebok releases the final scene pack with two new pairs of Stompers. It's, it's a cute concept, really. There's one pair inspired by Ripley's power loader in bright construction yellow with black stripes like hazard tape, and a second pair inspired by iconic girl boss the Alien Queen, which is a monochromatic all-black pair in glossy patent leather. Honestly, these shoes slap. I may have qualms with the Stompers in the movie, and don't worry I'm getting there, but these shoes were cool as hell, and I would happily wear either pair. I mean, do I already own a pair of neon yellow sneakers with black details? Yes, I absolutely do. Do I want more? Yes, I absolutely do. Anyway, the Stomper expansion didn't end there, as then Ree- Reebok released the Bishop Alien Stomper in 2019 as a pretty screen-accurate recreation of Bishop's mid-ankle height sneakers. And they also released a United States Colonial Marine Corps-inspired beige and camo pair of Bug Stompers in 2020 that were really made as an ode to Hudson. If you were even yeah. remotely interested, I would totally <laughs> recommend looking up the Bug Stomper announcement on Reebok's <clears throat> website, because the detail on these shoes is great great. great. There are little hidden details from Hudson's armor, exact replicas of the camouflage patterns from both the Marines' fatigues and armor used in different parts of the shoes, and a hidden QR code under the flap that takes you to a website that Reebok built specifically for the shoes. So it's a pretty impressive piece of fan merchandising, I will say. So Reebok has said that this was the end of the line for Stomper releases, but who knows? I'm sure that if we get new Alien properties popping up in the near future, Reebok won't be far behind. With it's like when Jay Z says he's
1: retiring. It's like, yeah. nah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. All right, no, yeah, it's 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 not. They they will be back. Don't don't fret. Um, but. Now it's time for me to get salty. Let's talk about why the Stompers annoy the absolute shit out of me. So, I want to say first, right off the bat, this is not because I think the Stompers are inherently a bad design. I think Chuan Li did a bang-up job with the brief he was given, and even if I'm not thrilled with 80s fashion reboots, the Stomper releases on the market aren't bad for contemporary sneakers. No, what drives me up the wall is the radical shift in, sh- in shoe style between Alien and its sequel. So the shoes that Ripley and the crew wore in Alien are, to put it simply, immaculate from a costuming perspective. You can go back and listen to April's episode where- last April's episode where we watched Alien if you want to hear me fangirl about a shoe for ages. But guess what? I'm gonna do it again, baby! The shoes (laughs) in Alien! So good! They are a modified off-white converse high top with added color-matched D-rings instead of lace holes. These shoes represent exactly what a crew uniform should be. They're simple, they're functional, and they're spare. They don't draw any attention, but they're pleasing to the eye, and they have these little hardware upgrades which make them read as utility wear. These are the kind of shoes that are there to do a job, but they also sure as hell don't have any extras. Those are company-provided shoes, sweetheart, and if you want any padding in there, you can get absolutely fucked and buy your own insult, because
1: (laughs) this is Weyland-Yutani!
0: Weyland-Yutani shoes don't give you shit. (laughs) <laughs> in the pure aesthetic sense, they are absolutely beautiful in their simplicity. Nothing overstated, but a loving attention to detail. These shoes are also a great reflection of Ripley's character. They are both—they're sleek and they're not glamorous. They're easily under, underestimated, but undeniably functional above all else. Ripley doesn't need to announce that she's going to kick your ass, she'll simply do it, because that's what she needs to do. Those sneakers will similarly go unnoticed until they are rammed directly up your ass, and when they come back out your throat on the other end, you'll pause and go, Wow, hey, I love the D-ring detailing for the laces here, very nice, before you phase out of this plane of existence. The shoes are also a mirror for the classic image every horny teen attracted to women in the 80s loved of Ripley stripping off her her slimed and battered jumpsuit and revealing those thin white tank top and white bikini underwear set. Um, They're a perfect shoe that can be the match for simple tidy whities or a utilitarian match for Ripley's workers' jumpsuit. Um, Those off-white sneakers are essentially everything the Stompers weren't. Now the Stompers... Oh, the stompers. These are one of the most confusing character choices I have ever seen as a former costume designer. I will grant that in the plot of this movie, Ripley is temporarily forced into civilian life and 50 years in the future. Fashions change, and she is now picking her own clothing instead of it being a uniform. Still. Still! Still! They make no You fucking never know, sense. you could be blind.
1: You, you could go colorblind and like maybe have spatial differentiation <laughs> problems after cryosleep. They don't yeah. talk about the effects. I mean,
0: right? maybe that would explain more than anything, James Cameron explained. So you can look at <laughs> everything else Ripley chooses to wear after her reawakening. It's pale blue, it's beige, it's utilitarian jackets and simple functional <laughs> shirts. What her fashion choices are not are flashy, colorful, or aspiring no. to be fashionable, all of which the stompers are they're also bulky they're bulky Mm -hmm. chunky shoes they're fucking ugly yeah it's it's a weird shift especially given the framing of Ripley's femininity in the movies. Yeah. So, to flash backwards again. In Alien, like we've said, the casting of all of the characters was essentially gender neutral or at least gender blind, which is still a baller move. And so was the costuming. The only differentiation in what the pe- is in the male versus female costuming was that people with lady boobs got tank tops in their cryopods so you couldn't see their sinful nipples. It's Almost a surprise when Ripley has her scantily, sexy little, her sexy little scantily clad moment at the end of the movie after being so fucking tough the whole time and treated in a way that was devoid Mm. of any typical sexy lady tropes of femininity that were so common Mm. in film at the time. Her sex appeal was almost an afterthought to utility, and that's part of what made it hot, because Ripley was pared down to her rawest, most vulnerable self, both in character and in costume. And while wearing the simplest tank top and underwear that could have come out of a Hanes five pack, she was captivating. And there's the strong sensuality to the scene that comes from her rather than her clothing. Those high tops represent the same thing. They're simple, they're basic, they're a unisex shoe. But on Ripley, they become sleek and feminine because they are hers. The Stompers, on the other hand... They are a blatantly... Un- yes, what? You're thinking. Okay,
1: so the reason why I think the Stompers exist, and feel free to course correct mm-hmm. me here, is the reason why I feel the Stompers are there is because it's a... These are the you got demoted from Wayland yutani mm-hmm. shoes. These are Wayland yutani demotion shoes, I feel. like, mm-hmm. And the reason why I feel this way is... And I'm not denying that they're from Reebok. They are from Reebok. But I feel like this was actually kind of... I felt there was almost a metaphorical message where your good shoes right cost mm-hmm. real money but your bootleg shoes are like super cheap and now because you don't make as much money you have to wear these really ugly oh, ass see, I shoes feel the that, opposite. i thought about this at length too, I, I feel like I thought, it's
0: actually the exact opposite because just from like knowing about shoes and the fashion perspective yeah. The the shoes that they wore in Aliens were cheap ass shoes. Those were cheap ass shoes that they can to purchase our in bulk with. Two hour knowledge. Well, yeah, but those are Converse. There's literally like there's no padding and there's there's no structure. There's not the available space to include padding in a shoe like that. And but there's it no could color have been made choices. of some sort of space age material like maybe but there's given there's more, everything I feel there was that there's more the corporation gave their gave their people like there was nothing luxurious about any of the clothing options they were given an alien like, yeah
1: but i think they made sure that it was extra ugly when you got demoted i think it was like the equivalent of you can't wear normal clothing anymore here's but a burlap like, sack i don't
0: think they're giving her shoes anymore i assume she had to buy those herself because the corporation kicked her out
1: And I assume that they were from a really, I feel like she, cause she definitely got a pay cut and Mm -hmm. adjustment 57 years is a long time, you know, adjusting for inflation. I can only assume that she probably didn't have as much money. Right. And so I kind of felt it was like, I really felt she got kicked down the social ladder that was what i came up with because who in their right fucking mind would ever especially with blatant signs of post-traumatic stress disorder who in their right fucking mind would get back on a on a spaceship you know conscience or no conscience Mm -hmm. no one would get back on a spaceship because they would also know that they were a danger to themselves and they were a danger to their crew so the only thing i can come up with is pure fucking desperation economic and and social
0: like i don't disagree with that but i think the other problem with it the is theory. that the, the shoes are clearly designed to look fashionable Reebok thought we would like them the designers thought we would like them they are not designed to look like a downgrade right. shoe they're supposed to be a fashionable desirable thing right. which I think right. kind of undercuts that right um right
1: and I mean but there's lots of people in the costume design industry who have no idea what the fuck they're doing so you know yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's sure. not like yeah I'm not saying it's just i don't really feel like these were the prettiest shoes on earth no it also I mean, felt like
0: you're not going to hear me defending them but <laughs>
1: yeah there's there was a moment where i was like okay so it's like the 80s and the 2050s okay yes, like whatever yes, that's that's I, what i thought happened yeah, I no think it's, it's like, exactly okay. that it's right.
0: retro fashion that was contemporary at the time yeah
1: new wave retro you know is like is back on the air in this in this mm-hmm. future that's that's what it is
0: yeah Right. But so to get back to the the idea of Ripley's femininity and the shoes, the Stompers, on the other hand, are the exact opposite of what the alien shoe was, because they are a blatantly unfeminine shoe. They have traditional masculine styling, proportions, bulk, and color palette. I mean, hell, the mold they were made from was literally a men's basketball shoe. And just for clarity, I want to say that I do not think any clothing should be limited to any one gender, but there is a very clear gender coding in most mass-produced Western clothing for the last, oh, thousand years at least. So that's what I'm referencing here. I digress. Anyway, the masculinity of the shoe itself doesn't seem wildly out of character for Ripley. She clearly doesn't shy away from masculine clothing when it's functional, so masculine fashion isn't a leap to make. But what DOES annoy me is how the shoes reflect the heavily gendered context of this sequel. To me, mm. this, these shoes are a perfect pairing, with a scene where Ripley asks the Marines what she can do to help, and the men are all pleasantly surprised that this little lady can control a mech suit, a scene which annoyed the ever-loving shit out of me. So in Alien, gender hardly played into the movie at all. Ripley was just as capable as any man on the ship, and really more so, and there was never... That was never even a point of contention, they just did their jobs. In Aliens, Ripley wastes vital time trying to prove to a bunch of marines who were hopped up on machismo that she can be useful, nay, essential, even though she's a a woman. So, in my mind, the shoes, these Stompers, are the sartorial version of that. They're a shoe that screams, I'm a tomboy who can hang out with the boys, which should be unnecessary after everything established in Alien. So in short, the plot of Aliens the Stomp- and the Stompers by association serves to undermine Ripley's autonomy and authority as a woman. She is reframed as a woman fighting to gain back some of the authoritative power of the men that she's surrounded by, rather than having the already powerful person that we we saw in Alien. Does all of this feel like a stretch? You know, on the surface, sure. But thinking about this kind of stuff is the very purpose of the costuming and creative team, and it feels like the choices that took us from the Alien Sneaker to the Alien Stomper are disjointed at best and that's unsurprising
1: though which given is reflective the, yeah, of the film itself.
0: exactly that yeah that's the thing so given the complete right. tonal shift from not... alien to aliens there are right. a lot of changes that feel abrupt and confusing and the stomper is simply a
1: symbol right of that it's game. just one more thing yeah and that's yeah. just it it's not that there was and that's just there when we're looking at it it's not that there's anything Quote unquote, wrong with it. It's just that we're still in a transitioning period, or at least the 80s were in film. So we're still at this place where the, you know, we're still trying to find ourselves collectively, where we're trying to decide what the appropriate scenes are. You know, what, you know, in my opinion, that was a realistic exchange from the point of view of the 80s of how a man would speak to a woman. Mm -hmm. And I do think. That all things considered, I'm not saying it, it was handled well, yeah. but I definitely do think that was a reflection of the reality of the 80s. It's kind yes. of like how you could fucking explain, you could expect mansplaining in the 1950s, like whenever we were watching right. uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon. You could totally expect right. a bunch of stupid Again, shit to come out of a lead male's been mouth.
0: fine if I saw Aliens first. But having seen Aliens right. first, yeah. it felt like and a punch in the And looking at Ridley Scott's
1: intellect, yes, mm-hmm. I completely agree. It diluted the intelligence of the original film. Yes, and also
0: intelligence and costume designing. So, like, I will say for The Stomper that it feels like a totally logical redesign for a genre switch from pure sci-fi horror into the action genre. Because The Stomper has all the subtlety of a Michael Bay explosion. And in that sense, The Stomper (laughs) is a total success. Like, it's a shoe that fits Uh, the movie. It's just a shoe that speaks to... And it
1: makes me want to take a shower saying that it was a success. Uh It's just like, know.
0: I know because yeah, you know what? The absolute like the culminating thing that I will say about the stomper is that finally, finally, Ripley stompers are fucking ugly. I'll say it. Right. I hate them. The end. I hate right. these shoes. I hate right. them.
1: <laughs> fucking ugly shit.
0: Yeah, 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 I've had many thoughts and feelings about shoes in my time, but this yeah, these I've never shoes seen something
1: where I look at something and I thought, hmm puce huh gag (laughs) reflex it's weird because i'm not really like i used to go shopping quite a bit when i was in high school but like yeah i knew my stuff back then but then i looked at the shoes and i thought who the fuck made these and what happened to their eyes like were they blind when they were putting these together Yeah, i felt bad for the person who put them i really did i sat there and i went wow i mean it, it screamed like It made me wonder. I was like, man, I guess they still have sweatshops in the future is really what I thought. And I was not happy about it. I I wasn't funny. I wasn't laughing either. Mm -hmm. I thought, wow, they still have sweatshops in the future. That sucks. Because that's what they reminded me of. They reminded me of these ugly assembly line, horrible nightmare shoes. And I was wondering, you know, maybe that was kind of the intention. That was something I still. I
0: I still don't think so. Because they were supposed to be highly fashionable shoes for the 80s. Like, this is... Mm. They're hideous now. I, I hate them. But, like, they were supposed to be desirable shoes. And yeah. that's... Like, they're shoes designed for the audience rather than for the world of the the movie, I think we can agree. Because there's nothing else that looks like them in the, in the other costume design. They're clearly a contemporary shoe design shoehorned into this.
1: You know what? I'll say this, then. I'll nix what I said before, but I'll say this then. Um, Overall, even though we're talking about the minutiae here, it's little things that do add up when we're we're talking about a movie, right? You know, uh, Calumet baking powder, red apple cigarettes, uh, cerveza, chango beer. In case you guys don't know what those are, those are all things that are linked to different actors. Those are their legacies, more or less. Um, I'm sorry, those are things that are linked to different directors. Those are their legacies, Mm -hmm. right? And... The funny thing about it is Scott's work aged way, way better than Cameron's piece did. I think that's kind of the big thing. If it wasn't for the fact that the queen was in the film mm-hmm. that the character arc on ripley was as impressive as it was and i mean mm-hmm. i'm not downplaying any of that shit don't get me wrong i'm not saying i'm just saying imagine if scott had directed it and imagine if scott had actually really got if we had gotten the, the full ron cobb experience the mm-hmm. full hans rudy giger experience mm-hmm. and that they had done all of that all the way through yeah. and that we had had more of that original world i think that we would have had a very different um a very different battle. And oh. I think that we would've had yeah, I think we've had a, a It would very have been different... a different movie
0: entirely. Completely.
1: Like, yeah. And I think and... it would have been better.
0: Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, like, and I I feel it because like uh Giger like he wasn't involved in aliens because of contractual yeah. obligations to Poltergeist yeah. 2 at the time and he was sad yeah. about it, and so am I, because like that influence was missed. And I I do wanna say, like, again, mm. I think there are many Like many successes in Aliens. Like, I think it achieved a lot. I think it is a fun movie. I think it is, like, I can't say I didn't sit down and enjoy myself when I watched it. Like, I don't want to say it's a bad movie. That is not what I'm saying here. I'm just saying it's it's not not the same movie as Aliens. It's hardly in the same universe.
1: (laughs) I think that it, well, I will say this. I do think that it's something that put it on the. I think it's something that put the Aliens' friend. (laughs) <laughs> i think it's something that put the alien franchise on a divergent path where yes. today we're not really as happy about where the alien franchise has gone and i think that there's a lot of people who are actually relieved and, I, and they're probably loath to admit it as well that that alien is now in the hands of a company that has the money and the resources mm to properly shoot it and execute mm-hmm. it even if that company is has a fucking mickey mouse symbol yeah. on, on the logo yeah, like <laughs> i am
0: terrified of the idea of like a marvelified mm. aliens universe but at the same oh time, you can totally
1: get that anyway that's I, the brood yeah exactly Have you ever heard of the brood that's the brood no you're gonna get that sooner or later anyway that's Ugh. a terrifying thing disney has been thinking for a very long time fans just in case you don't know that Disney has been trying for years to get horror off the ground. They wanted it for years. It was just something where they didn't know the right way to approach it. They just jumped into it. Sooner or later, Disney's going to get into the horror field, and they're going to start knocking heads around because um, they definitely have more resources, more connections than anyone else, except for maybe Warner Brothers, and they're going to definitely up the game. They're going to make it something (laughs) where... They'll probably restart the Alien franchise and they'll probably do it from the ground up and and just really reboot it. But if they're smart, Mm -hmm. they're not going to do it anytime soon. They're probably going to wait you know, 30 years to do it and do it from beginning to end. As far as horror in Disney movies, uh, we already got a little bit of that when we had WandaVision where we saw a dead vision on the screen. They're getting their toes into the water. Make no mistake about it. Because sooner or later, they're going to be going for, and if anybody's been watching Falcon and the Winter Soldier, they introduced one of the most controversial Mar- Marvel characters, which is Isaiah Bradley, who's the black Captain America, who is from the Tusca- He was inspired by uh, the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. And if any of you don't know that, you should go read about it. Yeah. And yeah, uh, sooner or later, they're gonna start getting much more serious in their tone because they're gonna bring Marvel zombies in probably at mm-hmm. some point. That's gonna be horrifying to watch. Yeah. And then yeah, if they get the brood, that was they were thinking about bringing in the brood for uh, Avengers: Infinity War, which means mm-hmm. they're very comfortable with where they're going. You know, they're gonna they're gonna do that. The brood is actually um, Marvel's version of the xenomorphs. And that is gonna be impressive to watch, because that's yeah. that I I put money on the fact that that's gonna be scary.
0: Yeah, yeah. But basically, all of this to say, Event Horizon is coming back sooner rather than later, and Alien, yeah. the, it's gonna come back maybe later rather than sooner but it's it's not going anywhere
1: i'm sure they're gonna i'm sure they're gonna have more sequels in the meantime yeah but i would i don't think that yeah everybody always is like the amount of time that we take to do a reboot has become smaller and smaller yes some people even joke it's like we might not even wait five years anymore we only may wait two years and then and shoot something new out right i mean we Mm -hmm. technically have At one point we had like two Spider-Mans on the screen. At one point we had, you know, we're we're getting less selective. And also we have like, I think we have two Batmans technically three, if there's going to be a Joker sequel, maybe. Mm -hmm. So we're getting more comfortable with the idea of, of throwing these characters up in different incarnations with different directors. So that's another big thing. The other big thing is, um, I shouldn't say big thing. That's another, that's another step forward. (laughs) for better or worse for the film Mm. industry
0: yeah no it's less that i'm like oh i'm desperate to see that it's more that i hope that ridley scott Mm. continues to be a prominent part of the alien
1: development
0: you know that's that's what i mean
1: (laughs) if i was him if i was him i would really go to disney and be like okay i know we're doing this in another 20 years let's start up the architecture now so that when it takes off the assembly line there's no delays that's what i would do but Mm -hmm. i mean no no director really wants to do that except for maybe sam Raimi, because of how he did evil dead and evil dead 2 but that's a completely different can of worms (laughs) most people think that evil dead 2 is a sequel it is not evil dead 2 is technically a reboot with a twist ending but uh don't massacre for me for that that's just my opinion (laughs) um Well, if you like these movies i always say event horizon pairs well with most 90s sci-fi horror like species existence the relic or virus mm-hmm. um most stuff in the alien franchise pairs well with anything giger-esque but mm-hmm. because of uh because of this particular you know action movie horror tone i tend to pair it with more adrenaline pieces like anything from the predator franchise they live leviathan and army of darkness um yeah so um it's all you know here at the late night we always talk about good causes and uh you know you'll notice that the last couple of months we didn't get to what we wanted to Uh, april is national autism month and we'd like to encourage listeners to learn more about autism on the autism self-advocacy network or asan Mm -hmm. and we'll provide the link to that in the comments below
0: yeah it's oh yeah no i was just gonna say so it it's really important when you're looking at causes about autism, about other neurodivergence, to prioritize the voices of autistic people when you're doing that. There are many advocacy groups that don't actually, that they're not run or operated by autistic people, that are instead run by people who, you know, might be advocates or whatever it might be, but prioritize the voices of the people who are actually affected. Listen to what they want and what they want you to know about themselves. And that's that's the best way that you can learn here. And there's a lot of great information on their website about what autistic people would like you to know.
1: hundred <laughs> percent agree. Um, those of you who have read my work know that I refer to knocked as Halloween's cousin. And one reason for that is that because as of April 31st, at the end of this month, Halloween will be six months away. Um, April also means you should begin transferring your pumpkin saplings to the garden, but that's neither here nor there. Now, now that we're six months out, we don't really get to talk a lot about the blue pumpkin uh, pails on Halloween, and we should inform listeners that a blue pumpkin pail at someone's house uh, means that you are aware of trick-or-treaters who are autistic. Um, One thing I would really like to talk about is the difference between blue pumpkin pails and teal pumpkin pails because it's a it's sort of a hot button topic for people on halloween um blue pumpkin pails were suggested as a way of identifying people who have autism uh no i'm sorry it was they were suggested they were suggested to be carried by children as a means of identification for having autism uh which is needless to say a bit problematic uh for you know because you may not want your child to be singled out as being autistic and that's Mm -hmm. not really uh you know necessarily something that you would want you know uh the other thing is i would also like to talk about how that is different from the teal pumpkin briefly because the teal pumpkin is a pumpkin that one puts in front of their house it's not a pumpkin pail a teal pumpkin uh, means that the homeowner is aware of people who might have is aware of the fact that there are trick or treaters who may have dietary needs that they may not be able to eat gluten or they may not be able to eat nuts and they may have a nut allergy, and so they're they're prepared with other alternative treats mm-hmm. for the treaters. And, you know the reason why i'm saying this now is because it's six months out and it would probably be good if you are a homeowner or you do plan on giving out candy and treats maybe to just be aware of these things yeah you know yeah
0: and just to continue on the that blue to- blue pumpkin topic for a second uh-huh. it's just good to important to note that the burden of it, there should never be a burden of self-identification placed on any minority group and neurodivergent people that simply should not be something that you have to wear a badge to self identify in order to receive the polite treatment that you deserve What if should you don't happen, understand that yeah. if you don't
1: understand that you might want to go into the textbooks and look back at World War II and how we treated Jewish people and how we used to put things like Stars of David on them see those things don't really tend to work out very well it, it creates something that we call othering mm-hmm. which is when we basically take a marginalized group of people and we go hey look it's a marginalized group of people it's not really so cool now i'm not yeah. telling if you're a parent of an autistic child and you want your autistic child to have a blue pumpkin pail and you feel that that's important to you i'm not saying don't do that you know right we will yeah. provide the links. You can take, you know, you're the parent. It's your choice at the end of the day. But we're going to provide the links so that you guys can inform yourselves and make your own decision yeah, about exactly. what's best for your child.
0: Yeah, obviously anyone who is autistic or at any form of neurodivergence, you have the choice to do what is most useful for you. But I would argue that for people who, you know, are planning on handing out Halloween candy. Instead of expecting someone to self-identify to you, maybe read up on different kinds of neurodivergence and learn how to be a supportive community member and just support everyone, whether they identify themselves or not. Just be polite. That's all it takes. That's be polite, be patient, just be a good person. And you shouldn't even really have to deal with any of this. Like, educate yourself, take on the burden of being a good community member, and you'll be just fine.
1: Yeah, but one thing I would like to add is that as the homeowner, you know, as the adult in the situation, theoretically, (laughs) the other good thing is also to remember that just because somebody doesn't react the way that you expect them to react doesn't mean that they're being impolite to you. Oh, yeah. And that is kind of like, you know, most people, the funny thing about this is, The reason why I think that this is such an important topic is that lately, most human beings communicate by way of memes and articles. And the problem with a meme is it's kind of condensing a very important idea down into something that can't really be shared in 180 characters and it's still important for you to know about right like the coronavirus is not 180 characters you should know about that or paying your taxes isn't 180 characters you should know about that too if you want to function normally in society so there are just things where especially if you're a horror fan and if you're a fan of the holiday of halloween and you're going to be participating in the halloween holidays it would be good to be aware of the fact That some ideas are more complicated than a meme, and that they're very important to understand. So, right,
0: right. Even well-intentioned ideas, do you know? Do your research, and again, so again, we recommend the Autism Self Advocacy Network and other similar sites that they can link you to as a resource for learning more so that you can prepare yourself whoever you might be and if you are you know neurodivergent maybe you'll find support and a community there as well so it's a great read for everyone is what we are saying so autism awareness celebrate that listen to autistic voices and do your bit and have a good halloween when we get there in six months
1: because now it's six months out and you'll know to prepare
0: yeah, and I will still be panicking about my costume one month before, but, you know, we can dream of
1: preparation. panicking about my costume about 30 <laughs> minutes before.
0: Yeah, all of the above.
1: So, <sighs> you know, up next will be the horror news, unfortunately. <laughs> Sophia Ryan will no longer be our horror news caster. In the meantime, you know, we hope you've enjoyed this, and we hope you guys have a great April, and uh, we'll catch you next time. See you Bye. later. Bye.
2: Hey everyone, it's Sophia. I don't know about you, but I am very ready to go outdoors. Despite my allergies, I just want to be out under the sun, but I don't know if I should go out there. I found this weird egg thing in my backyard, and I realized that although a lot of people celebrate Easter, I'm not one of them, and this egg somehow ended up in my backyard, and it's making some kind of weird humming noise. I don't know, I haven't worked up the courage to go look at it more closely yet, but maybe I just might head out there and poke it with a stick. In the daylight, of course. Nothing bad ever comes of that, right? Well, anyway, uh, here's the horror news. The Nightmares and Phantasms podcast wants to hear your horror and terrifying true tales. Your story should fall between 1,000 to 6,000 words, and as long as it has not previously been published in audio, and you maintain the rights Mm -hmm. to the story, you can submit. General submission guidelines apply. You can submit only one story per submission, and only once a month. See more detailed info at horrortreecom backslash ongoing hyphen submissions hyphen nightmares hyphen and hyphen phantasms hyphen podcast backslash. If you're ready, send your submissions to lompub at hotmail.com. But also, don't forget to peruse the website tree.com to find out more about events, open publication calls, and more going on in the horror community. If you're looking for an indie book recommendation, this is also a great place to go. Three Lobes Burning Eye Magazine, or 3LBE, is edited by Andrew S. Fuller, and it publishes twice a year in the fall and the spring. Each publication features six stories, and since their 20th issue, they started offering audio recordings, ebook formats, and online formats for your mobile devices. All magazine issues are free, but you can support the magazine by donating to the publication and the authors, or just by spreading the word. Spring is upon us, but they are remaining open to new submissions of short fiction for their spring issue. If your short story falls between 1,001 to 7,500 words, you might want to consider sticking to the 2,000 to 5,000 word range. You can read their submission information more closely at threelobedmagcom submissions.html, and it is recommended that you read a few issues before you submit. The Tales to Terrify podcast is open for flash fiction submissions only at this time. This means stories that are up to 2,000 words. Tales to Terrify accepts multiple submissions, up to two pieces at a time, in addition to reprints. They ask that you, quote, drag us deep into the unsettling atmosphere of a crumbling, gothic mansion. Show us the gritty, real-world horrors of evil people with dark intentions. Make our blood run cold and our breath catch in our throats as we're hunted by ravenous creatures. Unhinge our minds with reality-bending, psychological horrors. Make us feel the pain and sorrow of a long-suffering spirit. Visit TalesToTerrify.com backslash submissions to learn more. The Dark is an online magazine that publishes once a month, and they are looking for stories that consist of 2,000 to 6,000 words. Be sure to send them stories that, like True Darkness, are unpredictable and unusual, but not full of graphic violence. Send one submission at a time, and if you are accepted, they will pay 6 cents per word on publication for First World rights. Look at their information more closely by visiting them at thedarkmagazine.com submission guidelines backslash. Pseudopod's submission season is now open through July 31st, but they are only looking for non-exclusive reprints from 2021 anthologies and collections. The podcast expects to showcase these stories in November and December this year, so if your piece is going to be released any time before this deadline in July, either you or your publisher can get in touch with Pseudopod through their Moksha portal. Go to escapeartists.moksha.io to see all related publications and submit to Escape Pod podcastle pseudopod or the cast of wonders go to pseudopod.org backslash submissions backslash submissions hyphen schedule to view their schedule the no sleep podcast is now open for your scariest short stories that are a minimum of 1200 words up to 2499 words or 2500 words and above Audio dramas can also be submitted to the No Sleep pod, but make sure that the narration of your story is no longer than one hour, and the performance for your audio drama is somewhere between 20 and 40 minutes long. See more specifics for submitting at thenosleeppodcast.com backslash submissions. Strange Horizons is a magazine that publishes speculative fiction, poetry, reviews, essays, interviews, roundtable discussions, and art every week. They enjoy sci-fi, horror, fantasy, slipstream, and anything under the umbrella of Fantastica. Authors who have been published here have been shortlisted or won awards, including Hugo, Nebula, World Fantasy Awards, and more. They are excited for speculative fiction that continues the tradition of critiquing society and showing how it might work better or worse. If you have art, fiction, nonfiction, poetry, podcasts, or reviews, Go to strangehorizons.com submit to see their submission requirements. Are you ready to give your novel to a publisher? Consider Flame Tree Press, a publishing company that is now ready to take on speculative fiction novels. They're most interested in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, supernatural, crime, mystery, and suspense, and their goal is to share stories with general readers through all channels of the book trade. If your manuscript falls between 70,000 to 120,000 words and you did not previously self-publish it, they definitely want to see what you can bring to the table. Find more information at flametreepublishing.com/submissions.html. Please note that even though the Late Night does its best to bring horror authors the most up-to-date information for publication venues, it cannot guarantee that all the aforementioned information will remain valid. All submissions should be considered tentative and subject to change. If you're a magazine or press that's interested in having your submissions advertised on The Late Night, you can write to monarlawrence at hotmail.com. Thanks for tuning in.
1: The Late Night, a horror podcast, is brought to you by Moner T. Lawrence. Find us at monaria.com and The Late Night Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.